Welcome to the Skullcast for episode 25. This is Walter, and we have Azil and Griff on as usual. This is going to be kind of a return to normalcy after last show. Last show, as you guys probably heard, you know, I had a lot of real-life stuff going on. We didn't really prepare for an episode. It's kind of an impromptu thing. But we're back to kind of a normal pace now. Um, we were going to try to finish up, wrap up our dis- a discussion of Griffith. Uh, really finish. I kept saying and reiterating, yeah, I think we're done. I think we're done. And then, of course, you know, as you start thinking about it, there's probably still a lot of things we left on the table from last time. So I wanted to get started with that unless we have any real-life anecdotes or things like that. Uh, uh, nothing's going on in our lives. Sorry. <laughs> no, but it's... Uh... No one's no one's proud. I don't know. It's just been. It, it's interesting that it's like we're like on Griffith four or five now, actually, out of you know the intended three. We didn't actually discuss him last time though. We've actually only had yeah. three dedicated discussions of Griffith. Yeah. This being the third. The topic is just it's like hanging over us though. <laughs> so I mean, we'll, we'll we'll go ahead and get started, and it's because once you get to Femto, it starts to get a little hazy because it's hard. It's becomes a difficult to process his, his motivations and his internal thought things like that beyond what we hear in volume 22 uh etc with relation to the kid but there, there's more to say than that i mean i think as Azil said last time if you want to con- continue the discussion you get into a speculative area and so part of yeah. the large part of what i wanted to talk about is what are are for the future and by the future I mean I'm talking like the end and I don't I don't need anything super specific like guts is gonna you know split his head open with DS I mean like what expect to happen uh, within Falconia with Griffith as a character given what we know of him as a character as a as a member of the God hand uh, the kind of leadership he expresses on the battlefield the way he interacts with people in volume, say, volume 23 gives us a good insight into how he interacts with his subordinates pretty kindly and, you know, equally. What do you guys think the app inside Falconia will be, and do you think that'll change at all? Do you, what kind of ruler do you think Griffith will end up being? Well, that's extremely speculative, actually. <laughs> but uh, I, I guess, uh, you know, to shorten it down to two possibilities, he's either going to be the idol king, like, you know, the, the same way he's been so far, meaning, you know, nice towards, uh, you know, common people, you know, equal towards everyone and such, or he's going to be like a tyrant. So, you know, letting people die or at least not saving them from whatever evil stuff is going on inside the castle. But uh, I, I tend to think that, at least for now, at first, he's more going to stick to what he's done so far, meaning uh, having the appearance of being very nice and, you know, going around and, you know, just, you know, being, you know, somewhat of the, you know, pure, perfect, uh, you know, king, pretty, nice voice and so on. Now, that's that, that to- totally agree with you so far. Do you think that there's going to be a turning point? And, and by that I mean, you know, obviously something changes in the circumstances of the world that it will cause him to change his demeanor. Or, or how do you think that change will, will happen? Well, you know, the thing is we, sti- we still don't really know what the good hand uh, wants, you know, like you know, what the, the end goal is. So I think something wrong is going to be afoot, like something sinister is going to be, you know, going on in the background, but um, I don't necessarily think he'll turn evil all of a sudden or anything like that, but I think 
there's going to be something more wrong going on, mm. and either people won't be aware of it, or they'll be aware, but they'll be willing to cope with it. But I think something, it's, uh, you know, the way I imagine it is going to be more like, you know, creeping in little by little on the people, like, you know, maybe people disappearing or stuff like that. It could take many forms, but I don't think there's going to be a fracture and suddenly, uh, like, no more nice guy act and he's just turning out, you know, fool, you know, evil or something like that. I mean, it could happen, but that's not who I picture it right now. I see it more as, you know, things going on in the background that are wrong, but within Falconia, everything is, you know, everybody's playing nice and, and so on. Yeah. Mm, I yeah, it depends on if you feel like you know the the big changes, the Fantasia and the coming of Falconia. If you can extrapolate the way he's acted before versus the way the world is now and how he's going to act in it, if he's going to you know continue to be sort of I don't know this boringly benevolent you know kind of guy you know seemingly where he's you know he never he doesn't even see say anything that's you know sort of I don't know controversial isn't the right word, but it's like he doesn't really even get on anyone's nerves. I mean, even the nobles, you know, he just sort of disarms them, you know, expertly, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, and has Charlotte show up, and there's not even really, you know, there isn't even room for confrontation with him. <laughs> so it's like, I don't know, I don't know if that's going to change, or I think it's probably going to end up like uh, as said, where it's going to be something that's sort of, you know, creeping in the background, you know. Like, you know, the sort of the, I'm thinking of the title of uh, Wings of Light and Darkness, where in the woods you've got the apostles, you know, feeding on, you know, animals and just basically, you know, acting, you know, like these scuzzy guys that are hiding in the woods that are Griffith's hatchet men. And I don't know, now they're out in the open, but, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they behave themselves and how he wants them to behave and if it starts breaking down and where his, you know, goals is like, if you, you know, the way he wants to play King and how that works with, you know, the God hands overall plans, obviously, you know, whatever his intentions are probably aligned with whatever, you know, their more sinister long-term goals are. That's, so it'll be interesting to see. That's, yeah. the, that's the direction I would say things were headed towards a, a couple volumes ago, but after volume 34, seeing the apostles transform in front of humans and humans accepting those forms and kind of befriending them or having a camaraderie with them, to me that changed the whole equation because that means that evil kind of is out in the open and humans are accepting of it. You know, that, that changes the whole – go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, it, it depends on it depends on what their goal is and also if – you know, so far, Griffith and his ascent and, you know, the advent of Falconia and Fantasia, everything has been, you know, under plans. Like, it was following a pattern, sure. you know, pre-created by the idea of evil. So anyway, the thing is, uh, is this over now? Mm-hmm. Like, is the plan, you know, is that part of, you know, everything going around well and smoothly and, you know, causality doing all the work? Is it over or is it still going on? Like, is now, uh, I don't know, is it there going to be... Uh, an actual confrontation between, you know, astral creatures and uh, humans and, you know, the golden. And are they going to be a real opposition to Griffiths and not, uh, not, f- I wouldn't say Ganeshka was fake, but at least his downfall was, you know, planned for. So sure. uh, is it going to still be like that or is it going to be a real confrontation? And also, like we discussed uh, before, is there something planned going on like, 
you know, are things geared, geared toward making uh, Griffiths and Falconia a beacon of hope and light and protection, a haven for mm-hmm. people while the rest of the world goes to shit? If so, you know, the bad part is already planned, but it's all integrated to make, you know, the good end and uh, the apostles the good. So right. it, it was still viciously, I mean, it achieves the same ends, but while still maintaining that aspect of uh, we are the good guys, we can't protect you guys against the evil, you know, other guys so, you know, it would be that, that, might, that might not be uh, it might not be necessary to choose between, you know evil happening in the world and uh, playing nice for Griffiths you know, it could be the case, and the same goes for the other members of the God Hand I mean, so far, people don't know that they're all uh, in cahoots together. So I guess uh, Void and Ubicoran and Slan could play the, you know, the bad guys while mm-hmm. Griffiths plays the nice guy. And it's all a little act, but, you know, the people would buy it. So there are many possibilities. I think the, um, the, the conflict coming up is do humans have a place in this new world? Because that was, that, was that was the immediate conflict upon... <clears throat> When Ganeshka transformed, when the apostles then transformed, the humans then said, you know, humans have no place in this uh, between a, a, a fight between monsters and demons. Well, that's no yeah. different now. The world's been transformed and, and humans are basically just fodder. When you look at how the cockatrice, you know, acted and, and humans are running scared from trolls, humans are just food basically for this new world uh, unless they can be allied with apostles and Griffith and things like that. So I think the, the conflict is going to be what is the place for humans in this new world? I mean, it, it seems like it's leaning more towards subservience. Of course, that's not the kind of rule that Griffith has expressed so far. I just wonder if it'll it'll end up being that. Um, yeah, well, <clears throat> there's also the you know the aspect of uh, like humans before, like a thousand years ago and such. Mm-hmm. You know, there were witches and such. So humans had learned to tame the world and ally themselves with benevolent astral creators, you know, to, you know, fight against pests like trolls or malevolent astral creators like the cockatrice and stuff like that. So what I, I'm wondering is whether, you know, this will still happen or if the Godens, uh goals are to really put humans, you know, together with apostles and, you know, themselves mm-hmm. versus all other astral creators, you know, we already talked about this, but there would be a rift between humans and everything else, like, yeah. you know, and uh, I, I think, I've been thinking for a long time, actually, many years, that this might be what would be happening, you know, it's something uh, that I first, you know, occurred to me in uh, Iron Volume 24 and 25, when, you know, we saw the trolls and, and stuff like that, so... Yeah, I, I think it's a possibility, and um, that might be, you know, the direction they are taking, the good hand to achieve their goals. And I don't know if that would be, I mean, I don't know, turn everybody into an apostle or, or something like that, or, you know, I, I really have no idea what their end goal might be, but, yeah, I think... Sure, that can be a part of it, I, I definitely see that, yeah. I mean... There's a there's a premise there with the battle in Enoch between how Shirk, you know, sympathizes with uh, the the lady of the deep the depths I guess it is yeah versus yeah. you can see how that situation could have ended a, a, a bit differently if you didn't have a, a a magic user who sympathized with the forces that were there and it yeah. was knowledgeable of the forces that were there I can see humans under Falconia being basically just as, as you said treating astral creatures as basically just another form of monster and not trying to uh, understand tame is not the right word but you know the way Shirk inter- interacts with them is is quite a bit different. Just you know. allies themselves with, yeah. uh, you know. And of course, that's set up, um, 
There's, there's, a, all, there's also that the fact that you know Guts and company are headed to Elfilm, which is the haven of those types of creatures, or we imagine it will be. Uh, so it's already being set up in that direction, as far as sides are concerned. Yeah. Right now. Um, well, the thought that occurred to me that was just interesting about you know about Fantasia and all this, and my it's you know it's kind of obvious in a sense, but I don't know if everyone thinks of it that way because of you know sort of the shocking idea of humans and apostles living together. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we got that preview on the battlefield and discussion of it, and the interesting thing about Fantasia and the way this is all set up is that it makes apostles reasonable. Like a reasonable alternative, right? Yeah. As you guys have yeah. been hitting at, you know, like you know, you wouldn't want to live with these monsters unless there's monsters you, you know, these monsters you can talk to, yeah, and you can make yeah. deals with, and they'll defend you. Whereas, you know, like the Hydra is just going to eat you. Mm-hmm. So it makes it it makes it even possible that people would be accepting of these creatures. And also, the thing about you know witchcraft and you know the way they used to defend, obviously Griffith, you know, we know his his policy on witchcraft. Yeah, it's, uh, I wanted minority. to talk about that actually. Go before you go any further. Um, do you have something more beyond that? I'm sorry. Oh yeah, a little okay. bit. I'm gonna go let ahead. me go ramble ahead. a little bit, but we'll, uh, we'll come back to that after that. Then. All right. Yeah, and uh, I was just gonna say about you know the apostles and making that acceptable. Sort of, you know, humans were able to before they could sort of defend themselves. You know, with knowledge of magic and things like that. And I wonder if the point is not necessarily you know to help or make humans subservient, but just to make them, you know, like the God hand way and keep them separate from, yeah. you know, any alliances, you know, like you're, we're, we want, we're, they're pro human, but it's, it's their way. It's separate from that. They want to keep them from that. And I wonder if the, the downside or, you know, where some of the, you know, the nastiness can come in is literal like witch hunts, you know, and things like that. And, you know, accus- and it can also be an excuse for, you know, feeding people to apostles that are, you know, practicing yeah. witchcraft and of course they can blame them and say they're the ones bringing all these you know creatures out of the woods hmm. you know and things like that yeah so i, I agree i think it's uh i think it's uh you know very possible in that is that configuration i think the the, the key here is that the god hand want people to do what you know they want them to do like you know they don't want people to empower themselves they want to, you know, have to rely on them and apostles for protection in order right. to, you know, people would become dependent on them, you know, like, you know, helpless children. And I think, right. I think that's a, a direction they are probably likely to be heading towards. The thing about witches I wanted to say was I read up on Sonia, a little bit of Sonia stuff for a separate topic. And one thing I thought was interesting was that she's, of course, fascinated by Shirk at Vertanis, and she wants to be her friend. She asks her to join the Falcons at the end of their little encounter. She seems to have, and obviously expresses no knowledge of the fact that Griffith ordered, you know, a witch's head uh, earlier in in the encounter. And and it makes you, that's kind of a hint at kind of how he rules things. Uh, He's obviously not being totally open with his subordinates on, on everything. And I wonder if, I wonder if that'll carry through the rest of his thing, his regime as well as just, you know, he has his his home game. Uh, it's kind of this happy buffer for his humans, and then he has this side game as well to, for his apostles and his, and his god hand agenda as well. Kind of those two things working hand in hand. But Sonya is, is a character, you know, she seems like someone who probably wouldn't be cool with them hunting down witches. Uh, you know, even as, as, as happy as she is with Griffith, uh, I wonder if that encounter with, with Shirk kind of maybe... Uh, changed her would, would ultimately change her alliance if it came down to that. You know, I, I wonder if all of Griffith's people would be cool if he suddenly ordered some kind of evil 
uh, agenda. Well, no, I agree, and I think uh, Sonia's meeting with Shiruke was not. Uh, I mean, I don't think it was done for freebies, and, and we'll never come back to it. It uh, was setting up something that we. Oh yeah, to, she and, even she even says so. She says we'll meet again. Yeah. You know, we'll yeah. certainly meet again. And uh, I think the same goes even with Mule, you know. So and you know, going further with Raban and Owen, I, I think these are the people that you know who want, who wouldn't like. You know, if uh, you know evil stuff happened, uh, and uh, like the true side of Griffiths was revealed and such, and I think Sonia is likely to be the most forgiving of them all because she sees him, you know, in part for what he is, meaning a superior being, yeah. not you know common to these people. And uh, but yeah, I believe if she knew, like if Griffiths ordered Chiruke to to be killed, like for no reason, I, I don't think she'd uh, she'd be too happy with that. Yeah. And I think eventually. <laughs> Could be a point of contention. Like she might, you know, I don't know if she realized that he's uh, true evil or something like that. But uh, yeah, I think at some point she'll, uh, you know, come down from a little cloud in the sky. Yeah. Yeah, I think she'd definitely be conflicted about like, you know, just for the sake of argument, if she knew about, you know, the Flora incident, you know, Griffith could of course say, well, you know, she was an enemy, and you know, if she's an enemy and a threat, you know, we have to wipe them out. You know, that's why it's no- nothing, nothing against witches per se. You know, or people with that kind of ability, Sonia. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I like you just fine, depending on you know the base of her power. <laughs> but yeah, it would definitely give her a reason to sort of you know second guess you know what the agenda is here. Right. Though she doesn't do much of that, you know, anyway. But I mean, it's it's interesting because she's sort of in a position where she could. She has the potential to know more than anybody else working for Griffith. I guess Mule, like, is sort of the closest thing to her in a human to mm-hmm. sort of figure it out. Yeah. But, I mean, he'd be hearing it from her, so. He seems pretty oblivious to me, honestly, in a, yeah. in a, lot, of, in a lot of things. Well, he, yeah. the thing is, is he just had, he had that initial skepticism, sure. which maybe it's just to show the way people, you know, the way people join Griffith, you know, no matter what. That right. might be the point of that, or I don't know if that's ever going to come back, you know, with those... Because, I mean, obviously, you know, Mira gave those four characters, Shirke, Sonia, Mule, and Sidro, mm-hmm. a connection. And it just depends on how much more strongly that connection is going to come into play and if it's going to be some kind of bridge. Oh, yeah. I mean, I definitely think that interaction is going to – that whole first encounter seemed rife with laying the seeds for a future relationship to me, that whole yeah. scene. So, You know – one thing with uh, Mule and Sonia is that they've also been, I wouldn't say manipulated, but they are kind of a victim of, you know, the events. Like, Sonia, despite her powers, despite everything, she's just a kid. She was, you know, reduced uh, to slavery by, by the cushions, you know. She was about to probably, I don't know, be sent off to Wyndham to be inseminated, you know, for DACA production or something like that. So, you know... In the context in which Griffiths arrived and saved her and such, it's, uh, in a way, it's actually reminiscent of, you know, what happened to Casca. But my point is, yeah, she, of course she sees him as the ultimate savior. I mean, even without taking her powers into consideration, he arrived, you know, in shed like a fucking, I don't know, a paladin, an angel, you know, descended from the sky. So, and, you know, her powers even make it almost even more glorious than it was because she, she had, you know, foreseen it and mm-hmm. other people didn't believe her and such but my point is even without taking that into account 
it's it's a given she would you know idolize him idolize him and the same goes for Muriel I mean he even not you know taking all that stuff about Griffiths being you know a superhuman and, and such uh, Muriel was defending Wyndham they were in a in really a dire situation nobody was coming to help them then Griffiths arrives and saves the day and saves the people and you know that's something obviously that Muriel would you know you know, appreciate and see as being honorable and, and glorious and such. So even though he might have been, you know, skeptic about uh, Griffiths and why did he swear his allegiance to him and such, in the end, they were saving Wyndham from the cushions, you know, reclaiming the kingdom. So why wouldn't he go along with it? He didn't have any other choice anyway. He was not going to just, you yeah. know, go on his own. So, you know, f- so far... They went with it because, in any case, it was the only thing they could do. Now that the kingdom is established, maybe there's a more leeway for them to question, you know, the order of things. I want to, I want to nitpick just a, a little bit there because sure. you say Mule had no choice. Of course, of course, he had a, a choice. He could have just said, "Screw it, I'm, me and my remaining five guys are gonna." Yeah, I, yeah. The reason the reason I, the reason I bring that up is because thanks, but no thanks. The, the reason I bring that up is because, of course, when he came into the camp, he was shocked and surprised by a number of things, but was still compelled to go further. And each time, he had an opportunity yeah. to leave. You know, for example, when he sees they're working with cushions, he's not totally happy with that, but he continues. Yeah, yeah. Then he sees apostles in the forest. He's freaked out by that. But he keeps on going further. The, the point being that you know he, he did express skepticism and had an opportunity to leave, but of course didn't. Yeah. So that's, that's yeah. all. My point is that he didn't have, uh, I would say, a realistic option. Yeah, like, he, I agree. He, with that. he was skeptic uh, for many reasons and uh, many reasons, and uh, yeah, he was right to be. But my point is, uh, yeah, he couldn't have done anything with his remaining guys, like you said. Right. So yeah, yeah, he could have done it. Of course, at any point he could have, but. It was not uh, an actual choice, you know what sure. I mean. That's uh, the reason. I, the only reason I want to bring that up is because it's, it's very, it's very. Uh, what's the word? It's delicate. It's 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 carefully planned. That of course he had the option of leaving, but he couldn't because that was the most compelling choice to make, even yeah. though he knew all the things that were happening in the background. So I think it's very <laughs> clever of Mira to do it that way. Yeah, and everything is articulated. When he visits the camp, everything is articulated around Griffiths. Yep. I mean, the, the further he goes, everybody's talking about Griffiths, Sonia, and such a thing. The apostles say, oh, no, Lord Griffiths, don't tell Griffiths about it. Yeah. It's <laughs> all articulated like that, and it ends up with Griffiths, with, uh, you know, Sky in the background. Sure. Back drop, you know, summoning the souls of the dead, you know, so it's... <laughs> the guy is like... Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's beyond everything, so, yeah. So, um... <clears throat> Wow, that was an extremely dense 20 minutes of discussion. That felt like more like an hour. I don't mean it was like, uh, boring. It was amazing, but good God, only 20 minutes? We covered everything. Uh, oh, we didn't get the, the last two, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. No, def- points on Griffith. That's, I was about, I was about to transition into those two, um, kind of the, these are now, you know, when, uh, we first started this conversation, Azili said that's extremely speculative. Well, how about this? <laughs> What will the lasting image of Griffith be for the series, do you think? As far as when everything's said and done, when the final page has been written, when you finally turn that last page, what's going to be Griffith's legacy for not just the Berserk world necessarily, but also as a character, you know, in the readers' minds? You know, is it going to be a man who gave up his everything to to get his dream, and and what did that ultimately get him? Ramza, what did you get? I er, or would be. (laughs) Uh, a misguided human uh, that was led astray. 
Uh, what do you think is going to be the ultimate legacy for Griffith as a character? Where do you think this is headed for him? Oh, Sephiroth I... levels of awesome, you know. Like <laughs> <laughs> with your Final <laughs> Fantasy tactics, you're like, one-winged angel, man. <laughs> Just wait till he transforms at the end. But uh, I don't know. In my mind, like at first, I, I would have pegged misguided. But now I'm thinking, like, I don't know, at this point he's, like, he's sort of just a phony. Like, I mean, I, I'm sure that's going to change by the end with where things ultimately go. But, I mean, right now he is very much in phony mode and has been for a long time. Yeah. And there's been, you know, you have to really be paying attention and have to really care about, you know, looking beyond that to see, you know, through that, you know, that facade that he keeps up. Mm -hmm. And, uh... So I don't know. That's that's where I am now. I'm sure by the end it's going to get you know more interesting with him, and uh, we're going to get more towards villain and ultimate evil. And then I think probably I think there's going to be some minute amount of at least you know emotional mm -hmm. redemption at the end. You know, obviously he, he, you know, the guy has to die, but uh, yeah, that that would still be my assumption. I don't think I don't think he gets to be misguided though anymore. He's probably I mean maybe a little bit at the end. He'll have, you know, some, you know, kind of regret, or as we've discussed before, the acknowledgement that, you know, like, Guts is indeed his friend, mm -hmm. you know, maybe his only friend, and, yeah, that's about all I can see right now for him. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it's going uh, a mixed thing, like, it's not going to be clear-cut or anything like that, I think, yeah, he's going to return to villain and, like, ultimate evil guy by the end. You know, close to what Femto was uh, in the early volumes, like, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. You know, just, you know, cold face and you are nothing. You are just a piece of shit or some stuff like that. So, yeah, even though I don't know, I feel like I'm imitating some kind of uh, German bad guy in, uh, <laughs> in, in some cheesy movie. But, yeah, I mean, he's going to go back to evil. But at the same time, I think there's going to be, you know, the emphasis should be, in my opinion, on uh, his ambition. Like the fact, even at the end, it's what will transpire his ambition to be, you know, you know, the, the most, the biggest thing he can be. And also, I think there will be a part of sadness mm. because th that ambition uh, will, I think it will portray him in, in a way as being alone or, I don't know, being missing out on, on stuff. So I think they are going to be a part about him that if, even if he doesn't, you know, regret or feel bad or anything like that. I think the reader will be made to feel bad for him, you know, in yeah. the end. I think that can be done uh, very cleverly by Mura. So, but yeah, I, I think it's going to be like that. In a way, I think it's going to be, there's going to be an aspect of uh, tragic, you know, uh, yeah. for him. So yeah, that, I, I think these are the two points. His ambition and, uh, and the way he just gave everything to become just, you know, his ambition. And uh, the fact, yeah, there's going to be some sadness for him because it's it's pretty sad. In, it's pretty sad, I think, in the end, what what he did and what he's doing. You know, being a phony and everything, and for what? Yeah. For what? I think the um, the last couple moments that are going to really matter for Griffith are going to involve a conversation with guts. Yeah. And it's going to have to synthesize all of the things that's, that that have happened to them across their whole relationship. You know, from the beginning to to meeting with the sword. To the stairway uh, talk, to guts leaving. I don't mean they have to touch on all these points. I'm saying a conversation that touches on on on, on their relationship as it's changed across the whole time. Maybe maybe the last conversation they'll have is is, is Griffith kind of being in awe of what guts has achieved by himself as a human. You know, of, of creating this this band himself to uh, is surviving 
and becoming as, as strong as he has been as a human. Yeah. You know, I actually would uh, find it funny if, you know, his final thought was that it's, it's not fair, you know. Griffith's <laughs> final thought was, it's not fair. He did it. In the end, he was just, you know, superior in, in every way. It would right. be, yeah, I, it would, that would be actually pretty sad to me. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I see him as not. I mean, redemptive is not the right word. I, I, I think the course he's on right now, it's not going to change. It, it's not going to change his mind until yeah. his last breaths. You know, and you maybe don't in, think he's not. He's not going to like take that last lightning bolt from Void to save God's <laughs> life and allow him to get the killing blow in. <laughs> no, but Void. But, I've been imagining just like cheesy scenarios over here. No, that being said, uh, I you know what if Zod did. You know, yeah. I, I know I'm just going off course right now, but do you guys see Zod, you know, being able well, to... We'll get uh, to Zod's uh, intentions later. So. <laughs> I, I think, I don't think Void would use lightning bolts, first of all, to backtrack. I mean, he's Emperor Void. Palpatine in this scenario. <laughs> Void would, would materialize an anvil from negative space and have it drop on Griffith, you know. No, he would, I think he would just, you know, use God's own weapon against him, you know, there like open go. a portal in his back and yeah. he would stab himself in the back or something like that. Or even better, stop Casca in the face, you know? Yeah. <laughs> that would be a pretty dark way to go about it, but yeah, I can <laughs> I can see Void being that kind of uh, sinister figure. But I, I think it says something that for all three of us, we've been following a series for more than a decade, and we still can't necessarily predict, you know, what that last moment's going to be, how it's actually going to be resolved between these two characters... Yeah, I think that says a lot. Griffith, you've, yeah. made, you've made two pieces of like kind of joking fan art. One was more serious, one was a joke. But both of them are totally loaded with emotion, whether it's a joke oh, yeah. comedy or not, you know, about Griffith and about Griffith's final moments and Guts kind of standing over him. You know, one of them, I'll, I'll post them in the thread in, in case anyone, no one's seen them. But one of them is like um, a stick figure drawing of him saying, <laughs> Griffith saying, I love you, you know. <laughs> yeah. You have to you have to actually post the the link to the well, the page you made for it. Yeah, with the music, yeah, it, it really makes a scene. And there's another one though. You actually spent time on it. It's really cool, and it shows Griffith, uh, you know, kind of laid to rest and guts standing over him in the rain, crying. Is that right? Yeah. Well, he's like it's it's very artistic. He's is he's got you know the one eye with you know normal tears, the other one crying blood. That's... You know, from whatever final <laughs> battle you know has taken place. Right. And uh I don't know, that's just sort of the, the hope that there will be some form of reconciliation at the end. That's a good like, very very deftly worded. That's exactly what I'm yeah. talking about. You know, it ha- there has to be some kind of moment like that. Of course, I'm not expecting it to be exactly like that, but the fact that those that image is that image summons so much emotion, it, it means there's something right about it, you know? Yeah, I mean and it's not it's not even like a it's not even like sort of a lame like pro Griffith like stance for him to you know redeem himself or anything. It's I feel like it would be best for guts that he'd be able to at the end you know yeah. like put that to rest and you know mourn his friend you know. I agree. And just see it that way. Again, it's very Star Wars. You know, Luke Skywalker. You know, burning the the pier with his with Darth Vader on it and burning his armor. But it's uh you know Mira's a big Star Wars fan, so I feel like it's a it's a nice. Uh, those are nice tropes to tread upon with uh, the in subject. That, in that scene, are there elves dancing in the background to Wub Wub? <laughs> no, no. Good <laughs> God, no. Or at least it's going to be Wub Wub. It's not going to be that weird, you know, like whatever <laughs> song is in there now. With the, ooh, 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 
It sounds like almost like Apache or something. Right. Well, None of that. Star Wars always managed to come in and spoil our podcasts. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, did we? We're at some point we're gonna have to discuss these new episodes. Oh God, yeah. Wow. Well, oh, talking. But for now, uh, yeah. Any more thoughts on uh, Griffith's end? I think that covers. Can, can anyone see him just hating guts? <laughs> like you know, this guy's <laughs> ruined him completely. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, that might be a part of that. Yeah, I was just thinking, like at the end, like you know, ah, oh, this guy ruined my life. Um, <laughs> that that being said, Femto doesn't strike me as being too emotional, you know, one way or the other. So, yeah, actually, yeah. that that's a good part, you know. I mean. Are we assuming that when he dies, it will be under the guise of Femto and not Griffith? No, I think it'd be Griffith. Yeah, it's it's hard to say actually. Yeah, Woody River. So many endings here. It's like Beauty and the Beast. You know, he's gonna change <laughs> back. You know, in a sense. I I mean, the, the thing is, uh, as Femto, you know, he's been changed to the core. So yeah. I, so, I, so as far as we know, I mean, maybe maybe there's a little last tiny shred of him in left. You know. Yeah, and who knows yeah. how the, the we're not even incorporating like the child into this. Yeah, we, yeah, course, we, yeah. we had some we had some good discussion about that previously, and one yeah. of the things I was offering was that the child would come to resent the fact that Griffith played a role in ruining the child's family. You know, Griffith and or Guts and Casca, and that might play a role in what happens in the final moments. And of course, how Guts might feel if he has to stab his own kid to. Yeah, revenge, you know. So yeah, well, that would be terrible, actually. It's yeah, it's that's a mess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but... yeah, that's a good part, actually. I mean, if Griffith could even become a sort of non-entity, you know, to, you know, right. the ending could be sad, even without him having feelings or anything like that. Just guts and you know, Casca having to kill their own son, you know, in order to slay the, the villain. I mean, that would be enough. So I really wonder what part Griffiths will play in that. I mean, his emotions, provided he still has any emotions left. You know, I, I really wonder how it will play out. It's actually it's very interesting. Taking the child into account, it really changes, you know, a lot of things. Yeah, and it's one of those elements that I, I'm glad Miura did add it, but it kind of went above and beyond by adding that extra, you know, uh, uh, fold into this whole uh, puzzle. He didn't need to add that extra fold, but he went. Yeah. You know, he made it a little extra complicated for the whole, all the characters involved. Yeah. With that being said, I mean, the, the child was there. The boy has been there since uh, the very beginning of the series. You know, since volume sure. one. Uh, in a way, I think it's fitting. I just, mean, I just mean incorporating him into the whole Griffith debacle. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I get it. I mean, I get it. But yeah, I mean, he could have let him die. Sure. The, the thing is, uh, what I like with Mura is that he doesn't over, you know, overplay things. Like the child, you know, coming back, hunting guts and such a thing. It played a role protecting his mother. It had a culmination. And then it's still going on, but in a completely different way. So I, 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 that's really something I appreciate about Berserk is that, you know, Murai, it's the same way that we didn't see Femto for a long time. You know, mm -hmm. we saw him, you know, at the beginning, then during the eclipse, and we didn't see him. Then Griffiths comes back. And then we are going to see Femto maybe at the very end of the series. So it's actually it's a very I would say unusual and yeah. unconventional way to you know introduce characters and do things with them. But at the same time, it's very effective. I mean, the same thing with the Gold Hand. We've seen them a, a handful of times, but you know, I mean, we are just waiting with bated breath for mm. their next appearance. Anything just you know, Slan appearing in a 
in some fumes from a fire or, you know, Conrad being formed out of rats. It's like it, it would make our day, you know. And yeah. when, of course, when Femto, uh, when Griffiths transformed into Femto, uh, on the top of Ganishka and the Skull Knight appeared, it was like best episode ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It looks like the end of the yeah, series. Just seeing that, that preview image of, uh, yeah, Skull Knight standing over him with his sword and it's like, oh, well, that's Femto too. Holy shit. <laughs> Yeah, it was that crazy. still stands out to me as like the best image I've ever seen. <laughs> like yeah. out of when I, just seeing it out of context is even better because yeah, like uh, like you said, Walter, it's like wow, it's the end. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. the end, the of, end the, of the series. The guts. <laughs> well, we'll move on. We kind of covered our bases with Griffith. Um, obviously, three podcasts worth of Griffith is a lot to process there, but you know he's a big character, so I'm still like ruminating on all the different like. Uh, Jokey endings I've come up with. Did did Guts know that he was the clone of Gazric with the recessive genes? <laughs> oh God! You know? <laughs> no. And Skull also, Knight. there's you can also Skull like Skull Knight taking off his mask and it looks like Griffith. Wasn't that? One? <laughs> yeah, there's that. And uh, also, like you know, obviously in the giant God Hand Griffith throne room after Griffith has died, and you know, told Guts how he was always you know the better one, and you know, <laughs> you know, Griffith like Guts picks up the crown, you know, and everything, and then just oh, tosses it. Like, eh, and walks out of the room. <laughs> Not his way. Anyway, let's let's move on. Okay. So um, one of the other things I wanted to talk about this week was Sonya, and we kind of touched on a little bit of it in this last topic, but uh, there was some discussion about Sonya in, in relation to how she'll react to uh, Rickard, and uh, it made me think that we should have a discussion about Sonya and her powers because she's a pretty unique character in the series. She's not a magic user per se. I, don't, I, I mean, I say per se. That's even an overstatement. It's, she's not a magic user. She's a, a medium is the term that they use over, yeah. over you know. Uh, and but the, the the kind of the boundary of what her powers are is a little fuzzy to me, and it seems to be changing. Not changing. <laughs> we see new aspects of it every now and then. I think. Um, when we first see her, she says she, that she, she heard about Griffith or the Falcon of Light coming to save them. You know, on, she, she says she heard it carried on the wind. And um, she's also sort of in a trance at that moment. Uh, she's uh, in Shet. She's one of the many captured or uh, held captive women of Midland at the time. Yeah. But she's uh, she ultimately is able to read people's thoughts and project thoughts as well. And, and uh, speak into people's minds, project images. The question I have for you guys she is: She can also she can also see dead spirits. Oh, really? I, I must have missed that. Is that in twenty three? Well, when uh, no, no, it's uh, in written. It's when uh, Shiruke frees the souls of uh, the hanged Christians. Uh, Sonia can see it, you know, in, in the cloud, in the fumes. She she can see the souls, you know, going off. I actually didn't see that as much different from the way that she can perceive elves, that she can just sense things in the astral world a little more keener than others. Well, the thing is, uh, elves, you know, I mean, technically elves can be seen by anybody, you know, provided they are not you know, indoctrinated by the, you know, Holy See and such. But uh, I think seeing the souls of the dead is a bit more, I, I think it's beyond that, you know. Mm. Okay. I don't know. At least that's how I interpret it. I, I think it's, it's not something uh, the average human could see. I mean, no, Mule couldn't see that. Well, sure. I mean, we know Sonya's special. We know she has... I mean, she even describes herself... She has a little cute analogy about how uh, she's a kite next to the, the falcon and everyone else. All the other humans are just lame ducks, basically. 
Yeah. Can't, can't fly as high as the Falcon, and she can. She says she shares a, a kind of a special relationship with Griffith in that she can uh, be in the same sky and feel the same wind as the Falcon. Mm. And the, the, not different from the, the dragons, which are the apostles, and the ducks, which is humans. And the crows. Sorry? The crows, yeah, right. Yeah. And that reminded me actually a little bit of uh, Shirk and Guts' relationship, where Shirk and Guts have a unique relationship as well, where she's in his, in his battles in a more special way than anybody else is. And she's the one that's obviously helping him in battle. And I think it's really neat that these two characters meet in this way and they have that kind of similar connection. But uh, beyond that, you know, the way her powers work, do you guys think... It's it's just a an abnormality of of a human that has that ability, similar to just you know like a, kind of a, a fortune teller type of thing, or do do you think it's more to it than that? She was yeah. Well, she was and is it is her is her power completely different from like that of a witch's, or is she like a savant? Like would she have like extreme potential to be like a proper magic user? It's a good question. I don't, I don't. I don't really know. That's why I want to bring it up for discussion. I, I think she's gifted. I mean, I think a gift is not something uh, a witch can, you know, like a uh, witch. Witchcraft is acquired, you know. Like Shulke yeah. learned it from Froa, and uh, Farnese can learn it. It's a. It's a point. The point is everybody can learn it, provided you can concentrate and you know and whatever. That's probably a part of uh, you know what to say. You know, some people are better at it than others. Like for every other thing. But uh, I think it's you know inherently different from uh, Sonia's power. Sonia was born with it, or at, maybe not born with it, but at least you know she developed it by herself without trying to. And so uh, I think in that way her power is is very different. I don't think uh, Shiruke could learn to you know see the future or anything like that. Yeah, she actually when Sonia at the end of their encounter in twenty nine. She projects the image of what Vertanis will become, and Shirk herself is, is is shocked by what she sees. Not just the content of it, but how it happened. You know, she seems surprised that a power like that exists. Yeah, she's surprised that that, that happened, and she was basically asking, "Well, what was that? What did I just see?" What uh, do you think gave her this power? Yeah, I was. That's part of what I was going to bring up. Was I wonder if it's related to partly the changing of the world because after Griffith was incarnated or Finto was incarnated. But also the fact that she seems uh, – look at her, the way she's introduced. She's kind of in a trance herself. She says uh, her parents died in front of her. I wonder if it was like a shocking moment kind of thing where she went maybe crazy for a bit. And then when she came to, she had those powers maybe. This is, of course, well, quite a bit into it. But The thing is uh, her little analogy with you know the ugly duckling and such – it makes it sound like she was always like that, you know, and uh, she didn't reveal it. And such. I don't know. I, I, at least that's how I took it. Yeah, it, it might be from trauma, but uh, her little analogy made, made me think it was uh, something she had ever since she was born, you know, and maybe she learned to, re, you know, use it better as time went, went by. Well, she certainly found new uh, avenues to use her power because uh, a volume after she's introduced, Griffith's using her on the battlefield as kind of a way to direct the flow of battle. And uh, yeah. a little glimpse into how her power works, she says that uh, the life force of a battlefield is in constant flux, like blood that flows and stagnates. So she can actually see things that are happening, uh, uh, changing as they're happening, uh, an overall picture. The question I have is, does Griffith really need her to be able to determine where the enemy's weakness is, that seems strange to me in retrospect. At the time, it didn't really seem strange. But looking back, 
does Griffith really need a, a girl on a hill pointing out where the enemy commander is? Can't he just, you know, as a god hand, just figure it out? And It seems kind of, like, unfair. <laughs> I mean, really, it's sort of, he's, he's cheating well, so much. Right. But but that's not your point. Your point is just simply that, like, these are things that are, you know, he's kind of above this anyway. Right. Right. Well, the thing is, does he have the same power? Like, can he also foresee things like she do? She does? I mean... You know, from the you know fact he actually uses her in battle, it, I guess you know it's no, he he doesn't. Right. Yeah. I agree. Or is it that. a way for him to make it explainable? To you know, like, does he have to be? Does he have to look like Femto to do that? And is it just you know, it's something that people can accept? You know, this medium is a supernatural thing that's easy that's easily accepted by people at that point. That's and a- my my earlier question was sort of like. Is her power derived, like, is she blessed with this power, you know, as part of, like, the ideas, the idea of evil's will? Mm. And is she sort of, like, unknowingly wrapped up in, like, was she, like, Griffith was formed, you know, over, you know, generations. Was she also created for this purpose? Yeah, sure. I'd agree with that. She had well, the right place and was protected by him, ends up right next to Griffith as he's being attacked and all that stuff. I think that makes sense. That, that that she's uh, being used by Griffiths, yeah, I think so. I think it's uh, you know it's part of the general plan. But the thing is, was she created by the idea of evil? I'm not so sure, actually. I'm not so sure. Like, or did they just like yeah is it, yeah? Or could was she, she just a, incorporated in the plan? Yeah, could she be a freak of nature, like something crazy, or could she be an early evolution? You know, like, is the human jaw being mutated to, you know, get more abilities? And is Sonia the first, you know, specimen we've noticed that, you know, is, you know, special like that? So there could be many possibilities. In any case, I think her powers are distinct from that of which. And yeah, even though she compares herself to, to Griffiths, actually, it's, it's a very interesting thing. You know, when she compares herself to Griffiths, she compares Shuke to an, an owl, which is also right. uh, a raptor, you know, a bird of prey, but not one that can fly, you know, like a falcon would. Uh, so it's actually it's, it's interesting the way she compares the two, <laughs> and uh, I, I, I wonder if I wonder if there's some truth to it. Like, is her power something that is akin to what uh, God Hand does or the Apostles does? Uh, is it something which was granted by the, you know, idea of evil or? Is it something that occurred naturally or has its roots in more, you know, you know, common astral powers? There are many possibilities and depending on what it is, it could really change everything for our character. I mean, down the line. Mm-hmm. What, going back to the reason I brought her up was uh, the question that was brought up in the 332 thread was, you know, if Rickert comes back and, and Sonya encounters Rickert, Will she be able to detect that Griffith, you know, sacrificed his friends in the eclipse? Yeah. Uh, And also just that he knows that and he's going to be one of the only, you know, they're bringing in someone who has insider info on him anyway. But yeah, she'd be able to just maybe see it. I don't know. My my immediate thought was that she tends to capture images in people's heads, but she can also capture thoughts, you know. And I, I, I don't know if it would play out just like that based on what we know of her powers, you know. You know, I relate her power a bit to what elves can do. You know, they can feel uh, people's sure. emotions. 
and such. So, you know, Puck could, you know, feel when Guts was, you know, reminded of the, you know, the occultation ceremony and, you know, Casca being raped and everything. He could feel that kind of dread and, you know, it was illustrated with pictures. So I I wonder if it's like that for Sonia or if she will really be able to, I mean, she can read people's minds and she can talk, she can use telepathy, which is uh, also something else can do naturally. And uh, so, yeah, in that, I mean, that regard, I think it's not going to be too different from uh, how it's done, you know, like, for example, between Guts Group, how it's shown in Enoch or something like that. So, yeah, I think she could read. When she, you know, see first is Rickert, if he's thinking, oh, Griffiths, or she, if she's thinking about something like that, I think she might be able to, yeah, to know uh, he knew him from before and all, all that stuff. That's that's pretty much what I took away as well. That was my conclusion was that she would meet, she could meet Rickert, and then if if Rickert and Griffith happen to be in the same room, she might sense his wariness and wonder. Why is someone who's known Griffith for so long so apprehensive and nervous around him? You know, if that is indeed Rickard's, uh demeanor, I, I, I imagine it would be. I think just, you know, being from being next to Rickert, and if Rickert was seeing Griffiths at the time, she might also be able to read in his mind that he knew Griffiths, yeah. you know, from before, without them uh, openly admitting it. Like, I don't know if Griffiths is passing in the street from afar. Rickard sure. sees him and he's like, oh, it's Griffiths. And, you know, she could know... You know, mm-hmm. uh, she could get some clues. Yeah, I think it's totally possible. Yeah. Well, um, one kind of last thing I wanted to say about Sonya. I didn't have a whole lot more, well, but... Before we get to the last thing, sure, I wanted sure. to mention something kind of related to that. In that, uh, I guess we kind of brought it up before, but she's sort of uniquely, uh, in it, like, has the ability to, like, sort of figure, you know, Griffith out on, you know, a higher level than, like, Newell or someone else could because of uh, the way she can see thoughts and because of her abilities and do you think that it would change her opinion of Griffith you know not just finding out things like about the sacrifice but if she knew that essentially Ganeshka was sort of like uh you know like the whole thing was a dumb show that the thing you know that he was the the whole reason the Kushans attacked was basically for the benefit of Griffith in the long run and would that change her opinion of him or does she admire him strictly as sort of like a higher being so it doesn't matter like it doesn't matter that he you know, he saved her, but at the same time, the whole reason, you know, Ganeshka was attacking was because of him. She's not fast. She's not fascinated by his accomplishments or the fact that he's a, he's a hero. She's fascinated by him yeah. you know, as, yeah, a, as a being, you know. I, I think Griff is a point. I, I think, uh, you know, she's going to grow up and to mature a bit, and I think she might revise her opinion of Griffiths uh, as she learns more about him and his motivations and how things work. So if if uh, she knew about, you know, Femto and what Femto is like and, uh, you know, who little cares about people and that the whole thing was orchestrated, you know, the killing in, in uh, window, you know, the whole of Midland and such, I think it might actually change uh, her opinion of him. Yeah, I can see that happening. I mean, she could be dis- she could be disappointed. You know what I mean? Sure. As Plus we've when said, he marries you know Charlotte instead of her. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so it's also going to be that. Yeah, this, this petty jealousy <laughs> can help. As we've said before, there's so many seeds being planted early on about how these characters are going to turn out, and, and her and Mule and Raban and Owen and all these characters, they, they seem you know destined for opposition in the end. You know, they seem like sympathizers. Uh, with, with guts boss to me anyway. Yeah, but yeah. We'll see how it turns out. It's going to be interesting to see. Like, it's 
well, because yeah, it's gonna. I think there's gonna be a divide, and it's gonna be interesting to see like sort of uh, who stays and who goes in a sense. Mm-hmm. Like it'll be interesting to see like, oh, I didn't think that person would end up like, you know, either with guts or staying with Griffith. Yeah. <laughs> Will Foss? It'd be interesting if there was anyone on. Uh, <laughs> I actually thought about Foss earlier on the podcast. I was like, would he really, you know, go against Griffith at this point? He seems pretty devout, you know, at this point. Yeah, he's, I don't think... he's stuck with it. Even if he knows the truth, he's like, fuck it. I'm not changing sides again. Yeah, you know? Even it when would... Griffith was, you know, when the, the king was hunting him down, he still believed. So, yeah. yeah. I think I think at this point, if Griffith was like, you know, Foss, I need your blood to live. me you know, it's going to end up like the Snake Baron in Volume 1 with the mayor of the town, you know. Bring me more children. He's going to be, bring me Elise. Bring me Elise's blood. <laughs> I know. I mean, he it would just make, Faust would just admire Griffith more if he knew, like, it was all, you know, planned this way. Like, oh, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Faust. <laughs> well, is there anything else on Sonya? I know I introduced the topic, but I, I kind of covered what I wanted to, which is basically just spitballing what we know of her character. Uh, I'd never had a discussion with anybody about where we think her powers come from, so that was cool. Uh, she seems to be a character that's just sort of accepted and never questioned, so it's always cool to just poke at it, you know, a little bit, see where it goes. Yeah. Anyway, in any case, I think it's pretty clear she's got a role to be playing in the future, and it's going to be pretty interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> Next berserk topic is Zod's intentions. Uh, it was a thread in Manga Mausoleum where someone had asked, uh, why did Zod intervene uh, in Volume 11 uh, with Weald? And uh, Azil gave an answer, and then I gave an answer, and then we realized after the fact that we don't actually agree on, on why Zod intervened. And so we had, we started talking quite a bit and realized this is actually something that we could talk about pretty uh, at, at length, or maybe it won't be at length. So I wanted to hold that off until now. So let me just lay it out for you, just basically like what, what this is all about. So in Volume 8, uh, during Doldry, Guts is fighting against Buscone. His sword breaks. He's on the ropes. Zod takes that moment, throws his sword. Guts picks it up, uses it to slay Buscone. The tide of the battle is turned. After the battle's over, Zod says, uh, soon the eclipse will happen, the demon admin is coming. And then that's the end of the scene. Uh, fast forward volume 11, uh, Wild has Griffith in his arms and he's saying that, you know, his dream is over. Uh, why don't you summon the God Hand? And at that moment, when he realizes Griffith doesn't have to be here, it, Zod suddenly appears, rips Wild in half, saying that he can do what he wants just as easily as Wild can do what he wants. After Wild is ripped in shreds, he tells Griffith, the Behir, it'll, it'll return to you because that's how it is. And then uh, Guts says, is this what you meant by the death that I couldn't avoid? And then Zod simply says, you'll see you'll see soon enough. And then he flies away. The question is, why did Zod choose to intervene in each of these two moments? Uh, me and Azil both have different conclusions on that. It's, it's actually fascinating because this is kind of a, this is something that, you know, me and Azil have been talking I mean, I, I want to say every day for the past seven years. Isn't that pretty much right? I mean, more or less. But those yeah. things like sitting there under the surface that we don't agree on that we probably could have talked about years and years ago, but it just suddenly – it's just it's just funny. I'll go ahead and state my case and still you can state your case and we'll just see where it lands from that. Volume 8, my initial thought was all along that Zod chose to intervene then because he knew how critical of a moment it was adultery for the Falcons to win that battle. He saw them on the ropes. He gave them an extra push 
to move them forward uh, along the path towards the eclipse. On second thought, I, I, after talking with Azil about it, I, I tend to agree. He probably simply threw his sword to give Guts an edge in battle because in Volume 5, he ends, he ends their duel saying, our duel's put on hold. So he was observing Doldry. He sees Guts about to die. He gives Guts a chance to survive. He takes it, and Guts wins, obviously. So he, that satisfies that end. Of course, it satisfies the larger end as well because... It, it allows the Falcons to continue down their their, their progression towards the, the rise to power uh, in Midland and all, all the things that happen as a result of that. The question is whether or not Zod cared about playing a role in the grand scheme of things or not, or was he simply acting on his own because he admires Guts or, or wants to see Guts uh, back on the battlefield. Mm. That's what well, on that. Go ahead, Azil. No, I was just going to say, uh, you know... Uh, as, as far as throwing his swords to Gus, I don't think it was even uh, like he didn't want Gus to die against Boscoin. I don't think it's like that. It's even more specific. It's like Gus saw that broken. So he, the fight, you know, it, it wasn't even a refight anymore. He was just going to be slayed like, a, like you know, like nothing. So he just gave him, you know, he could have killed Boscoin. I, I mean, I guess he could have, you know, sniped him with a sword or whatever. Maybe not. But the point is, he gave so, Gus a sword. So that the fight could, you know, so that he could fight at least properly. So it's, I think it's even more specific. You know what I mean? I think if Guts had been about to be killed by Boscon, you know, after a fair fight, you know what I mean? Like, you know, Guts was inferior in battle and Boscon was about to, you know, you know, I don't know, just, you know, you know, slash him apart. Uh, I don't think Zod would have leapt from the sky and killed Boscon like that or anything like that. I, I, that's not his style to me. Mm. Yeah, I sorry think for this. He was trying to cut Gut's head off. <laughs> Sorry, I'm providing your comic relief here. But, uh, I don't know. I feel like you guys are, you're getting, you're going way deep on these two scenes, like Zod's intentions, uh, you know, like reading his mind on it. And yeah. it's interesting. But like, I've read, I read all your posts mm-hmm. on it and all your private, uh, messages on it. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm kind of in the middle. I'm somewhere in between where it's like, you know, whether he intended to or not, he was serving that greater purpose, and that sort of goes to greater, you know, idea of evil, causality, you know, control. Well, yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I yeah, think in, and, in any case, he was playing his part in the grand plan. So yeah, yeah, I mean, he, he is the way he is, and that because they want him that way, and it serves a greater purpose, whether he thinks he is or not. Mm-hmm. And... uh so yeah, at the end, part of me is just sort of like, well, who cares what he? It doesn't matter what he was thinking. <laughs> like, but uh, <laughs> I don't know, you know. And I can, I can, but I can, I can see it both ways. I can see where he like, you know, he knows that guts needs to win this fight, or else, you know, it's gonna really mess things up. You know, I mean, I feel like he has to know, like, you know, he, he reading the battlefield, he knows that like his intervention is gonna cause Griffith to win, wow. and that that's you know sort of the. The, the you know, that's, is, that's paving the path to his downfall. The thing is, to in order to, I mean, just to nitpick a bit, but, you know, Casca uh, had already taken the fort at that point. She had already, you know, beaten uh, Adam. And uh, so, you know, even if Guts had been killed by Boscon, nothing's to say the Falcons wouldn't have won anyway. I mean, sure, sure, you know, Boscon was uh, the general, you know, he was, you know, very charismatic and he might he would have uh, held the army together but uh, you know we we never know maybe Griffiths would have killed him I mean who knows uh... and, <laughs> yeah I mean yeah just you know my point is it seems to be a lot of you know thought on Zod's part you know 
to think, well, I have to help Guts kill Bolton because that's going to turn the, you know, tide of battle. I agree. Now, like, I'm, if, now I'm involved. <laughs> like, no, if you, if you just apply Occam's Razor, it's pretty simple. It, it's not like Zod was sitting there contemplating the myriad outcomes. He's not that kind of guy. He was just like, yeah. this is a good battle. Let's see it continued instead of ended in this boring way. I agree with that. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's, it's just the way that, you know, I mean, that's, that's what he's been doing, like, for the whole fucking series. Right, Just, right. oh, yeah, a strong one. Okay, let's fight, you know? I mean, that's, that's... Now, that's a perfect, perfect transition into why I disagree with you on Wild, because yeah. Zod, being a guy who, as in Volume 17, seeks the world out for challenging fights, looking for strong ones, why would someone like that, who gave Guts the edge so that he can continue seeing a good fight, why would he suddenly drop in out of nowhere to end the life of an apostle who's already dying? Like, basically, that's not a fair fight. That's not a strong one. He's already been beaten by a single human. What's the yeah. point of intervening at that point, you know? Well, in, in that, you know, it, it you know, best to be said that I, I agree. I mean, I think I think the case for Zod uh, intervening, you know, in order to make sure things go as planned, you know, is much stronger with uh, Wild than it is at, at Doldre. And I, I don't think it's necessary even because he wants, you know, uh, how to say, he wants the plan to go as planned or anything like that. But he sees Wild being a, a moron and, and just meddling with things in a mm-hmm. way that not only it, it's useless, but it's even embarrassing, you know. I mean, yeah. we know from Wild that Zod is the one who told him about Griffiths uh, mm-hmm. having the Beherit and such. And Wyatt doesn't seem to have, you know, much respect for Zod, or if any at all. And I, I think it's of course, uh, you know, reciprocal, given that uh, Zod doesn't seem to have much respect for anything that's not stronger than him. Yeah, so, tying, so, into, tying into that, when Guts fights Wyatt, he's even comments, "This guy's not. He doesn't have skill. He has reflexes." And so, you take take that in, in mind when you consider how Zod might view Wyatt. Uh, yeah. An average human who would just happen to be granted supernatural powers, he would have no respect for him as a warrior. You know? To me, yeah, to, to me, uh, Wild might have been, had he survived, he would have been one of the, you know, losers, uh, under those commands that he just smashes his skull and throws him at the skull knight to delay him, you know, that, that kind of guy. Yeah. Which, you know, and so, yeah. Zod was going to the eclipse. I think I, I think it's pretty clear at this point, and uh, he was going there. And he, of course, I mean, he expected it to happen. It's not like uh, he had better things to do. So yeah, in that regard, you know, Sling Wild was. <laughs> I wouldn't say that Wild was wasting everybody's time, but in any case, he was not doing anything that uh, was useful or beneficial or that Zod wanted to happen. So yeah, in that regard, I think that's why he left him. He was flying by. He saw he was doing essentially bullshit, and he just, you know, ripped it, ripped him apart. Mm. So that's the way. And you know, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I but I was going I, to say, I, I disagree. I'm sorry. I think I'm on Team Walter actually. <laughs> but, no problem. Uh, or at least I don't even know what team I'm on anymore. I know. I think you've been like convinced, but now I'm just sort of like I'm now getting involved. Maybe I'll come around, you know, after as you know forces me after you know. <laughs> no, no, a no while. But uh. No, I feel like my interpretation, I'm sort of like taking a step back and looking at it from like, you know, just looking at the story itself, you know, and like taking it, you know, rather than looking at it like these are the events, you know, as they happen, more like just from a literary like look, like Zod sort of intervenes in the affairs of Guts and Griffith like three times before the eclipse. And there's like a pattern here. The first time he spares Griffith's life because he realizes who he is and his significance. 
then he intervenes again, you know, for, you know, the perhaps for gut's sake, but it also it ends up helping Griffith. And then a third time, which is, you know, as Walter said, is the most sort of uh, egregious example where, you know, why is he, you know, showing up? At, you know, like, to me, it's highly coincidental that he's just flying by and sees Wild and goes, oh, this fucking guy, you know, <laughs> I'm sick yeah. of him. And well, comes in and kills him without any without any greater sort of intentions, or at least that's how, from just looking at the story, it's like you would you would get that idea that he is you know purposefully intervening or playing this part either, you know, in that world or just from a literary standpoint. Yeah, but the thing is, you know, if we just look at things uh, from inside the story, not from what what it uh, means to the reader, you know. Uh, Guts is fighting with Wild. He's having a hard time, you know, through the fight. He loses consciousness and such. Then he finally beats him. So the Falcons go away and such a thing. They are mending their wounds and, and such. Then we see Zod flying over Wyndham. He's, you know, seen by Charlotte. So before that, he's, he's far away. He's just, you know. So the way I take it is he's going to the occultation ceremony. Like every other apostle, you know, we see the snake baron traveling in the woods, we see the count and Roshin, you know, uh, stumbling on the, you know, the members of the band of the Falcon who stayed behind on their way to, you know, the location of the eclipse. So to me, Zod is also going, you know, there. That's what he's doing. Then, after he flies over Wyndham, uh, Wild comes out of the woods and starts, you know, uh, his little show. And then Zond happens to be flying over them and he drops down. So I totally agree that it's not coincidental. I mean, it's not coincidental in the way that everything was planned uh, in order to get Griffith to sacrifice. And I think Wild, uh, Wild's intervention is also part of the plan. You know, Wild, you know, broke, uh, you know, the band of the Falcons' uh, morale and Griffith's I mean, he broke everything. When he showed him, you know, how he was, said there was no hope, it was the final straw. And so this was something which was clearly, to me, orchestrated by the uh, Eater of Evil. And so Zod played a part in that as well. But my point is, I, I don't think, it's not like Zod was, you know, watching the whole thing unfold from above, like, you know, one hour watching Guts fight, watching and waiting at the last moment when you see, oh, shit, it's going to go wrong and just dropping down and breaking me in half, you know? That's my point. My, and my point well, yeah, is... Yeah, I don't, I don't think that either. It's just... Yeah. Of, uh, I guess... I don't know. Maybe the best thing I said in all this is it doesn't matter what he was thinking. <laughs> it's like it just worked out the way it's worked uh, out. The, 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 thing, the thing is, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a very, actually, a very, a very specific uh, kind of, you know, uh, discussion we are, we've had with, with Walter where, yeah... That's why I was a bit wary of talking about it on air because, yeah, it, it's very, I mean, it goes very in depth about Zod's mentality. And the thing is, I, I kind of agree when it comes to Wild that uh, Zod intervened because, you know, Wild was delaying the, you know, the eclipse and he, he was not doing anything uh, that was beneficial to Zod. But at the same time, my point is, I, I don't think Zod uh, has the mentality where he sees something is broken, like, he sees the situation is not going as it should be, and that he should fix it in order for it to, uh, you know, to, to, you know, go right. And what I told Walter privately is, for example, 
how did he know that uh, Wilde wasn't supposed to, I don't know, break uh, Griffith's spine? You know, Griffith could have uh, sacrificed Evan with a broken spine. It doesn't change anything. He could have broken his, you know, his arms or legs. It's not something... What if, he, so- what if he popped his head off, though? <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, of course. I mean, that, that's Walter's point is uh, Zod intervened so that Wilde wouldn't kill Griffith and, oh, fuck, yeah. no eclipse. But the thing is, Zod has no way to know what's going to happen. He's not a, a you know, seer like Sonia. <laughs> so, and the same way in, in Dolce, I mean, for example, what if Griffiths uh, had, was meant to lose a battle and, you know, like, you know, be captured and, you know, in captivity, then, you know, get rescued and then sacrifice? You know, the events, the chain of events from Zod's standpoint, he doesn't know what's supposed to happen or not. He just takes, you know, decision based on who he is, what he sees and what he thinks. So that's why I think, you know, uh, why I, I agree is that with Wild, he just, you know, offed him. Uh, and I, actually, that's why my original answer in the thread was a bit, you know, I, I left it a bit vague because I didn't want to presume what his mindset was about it. Like, but I agree, he killed Wild because he was not, you know, helping the situation. But my point is, was specifically about Zon's uh, mindset. I guess yeah, I just go- want to say, although I'm I'm pretty much satisfied actually, like that we're pretty much in a, I don't know, we're pretty much in a state of like agreement basically. Like I don't really have a big beef other than like, I don't know, things happen the way they happen. It's like like I, it was interesting. It was very your point about uh, him like Griffith being captured and basically going through s- something a similar situation to what he went through. Anyway, yeah. and coming, you know, and coming out to a, the sacrifice is very interesting, but it's like it's it's a much greater leap of speculation. Just like when you know, like when you said earlier, like you know, maybe uh, Griffith would have won the battle anyway. Yeah, it's yeah, still, you know, it's like things happened the way they happened. It's even, you know, it's more difficult. It's more problematic to go back and look at what you know what would have happened completely differently, other than like the the simplest answers whether that was a win or lose situation. Yeah, right, of course. Yeah. I agree. The thing is just, well, the point I made uh, to Walter earlier is, was just that I don't think Zod doesn't have, in order for, you know, things to go as uh, Walter originally, you know, lays them out to be, uh, it implies that Zod has some, you know, inner knowledge of what is supposed to happen. You know, like, yeah, you know, you're, that, you're, I yeah. guess your main point is that you don't see Zod as like, he's not like a god hand insider necessarily yeah. like in yeah. someone who's like intentionally going around moving you know chess pieces out there like moving pawns around you know on yeah, their behalf yeah pretty much i also don't see him uh, you know he, he's had this uh some some type uh of watcher aspect you know a bit like the skull knight you know watching from afar yeah. like watching battles and such but uh yeah at the same time i i you know that observer aspect I don't see him as the kind that would, you know, go around, uh, you know, guts and Griffith's ass, asses, and just, you know, make sure everything happens as is, you know, on the checklist. Check it yeah. up on them, you know, before they go to bed at night. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much, yeah. So, if yeah, Griffith so has a cold, he'll, like, you know, drop off, like, hot soup, you know, discreetly in the woods nearby. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's actually, yeah, that's my point, actually, because if you see it like that, you know, if you see his, you know, uh, him as that kind of guy, why didn't he save, you know, Gus and Casca when they were falling off the cliff, you know, in the battle against Adam, you know, because they were rescued, I mean, they were saved because well, of the... I have so a, I do have a retort for that, and that is, yeah. if he, assuming, if he did have any, if he does have some sort of foreknowledge, then he would know that, you know, like, that, it, that wasn't, like, a do-or-die situation, that, like, this is gonna work out, and maybe the, and by, 
by the nature of his intervention, the fact that he did intervene in those other times, we can assume that it wouldn't have worked out if he hadn't intervened, and that's why he did. I mean, yeah, that is that's kind of a catch-all, though. I mean, it's it, like it's a it's a bit of a jump, but it's but it's a logical jump. You know, it's I mean, it is a what's the word? I mean, it is kind of a kind of circular logic in a sense, but at the same time, it you know, it still makes sense that you know we can. You can at least say that. Well, he intervened because it was going to go wrong if he didn't yeah, intervene. I mean, yeah, yeah. If he, if, if he had uh, some sort of yeah, I mean, omni omnipotence of I mean, omniscience of uh, everything going around. Yeah, I guess he, yeah, yeah, he would have. I mean, if he knew everything, but uh, yeah, I don't think uh, I don't think he did. Because yeah, yeah, and I and what you're saying about him, he was flying to the eclipse. It's just funny because you're like you're looking at it very deeply, like much deeply, more deeply than I did before. Like really? as he's flying, to, when, no, when he's like going to Wyndham. Well, just thinking of him literally, like it's like you're to use a forced analogy that no one's going to understand. It's sort of like in the NFL they have like the coaches' cameras that'll show like it won't show the game. It will show a camera like focusing on every player and what they do individually. Yeah, and you can watch that player. That's sort of like what you're doing with Zod, where you're not thinking of him as part of the larger whole, like you know where he's you know he's eventually going to intervene with Wild. Like to me, when I look at him flying in the sky, it's like oh he's going to where Guts and Griffith are, you know, to intervene. Maybe that's just because I've read that these parts so many times. But the it's, thing is, at the time, you know, I, I see it as foreshadowing for that, rather than looking at it as the like, well, what's Zod doing here, you know? Anyway, but, you know, regardless of that, you know, assuming he doesn't know about that. Yeah, but the thing is, uh, at the time, Wild wasn't. Uh, I mean, the, the situation wasn't happening yet. You know, that's the thing. It's like if, if uh, I don't know. Even though it seems to me like, how did Zod? How could he possibly have known it was going to happen anyway? Was he like? Did he have a beeper? Like, uh, you know, alarm, alarm! Uh, you have to go save He's them. Beeper. <laughs> yeah, I mean, first, first off, that doesn't make sense to me. And second, the thing is. It happened after Guts uh, defeats Wild, when they have moved on, they are out of the woods, and they are just, you know, uh, mending their wounds. You know, we see Zod flying by. So, uh, I don't know. T to me, and the thing is, I, I don't know. I actually never thought about it like that. I always related it to, to Zod, you know, just, you know, traveling there like every other, you know, apostle at the time. So, because he flies, he, he's, you know, we see him go over Windham and just, you know, going, you know, who knows where. Then Wild comes out of the wood, start bullshitting them, and you know, a while after, Zod, you know, arrives and does his little thing. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I never really thought, uh, and I don't think, I don't know, I don't think he could have, you know, gone there specifically before. To me, no matter how you interpret his uh, intervention, it's something that happened because he was there at the right moment, you know. But it, it was a, uh, you know, how to say, uh, you know, a spur of the moment, you know, Seren so. like serendipity. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he, he just, you know, he saw, he saw it, he, and, you know, he just, you know, dropped down and did it. But the thing is, in any case, it was planned, you know, by, you know, a higher power. I it's don't, just, uh, you know, I guess the argument hinges on whether you believed he was in on the plan or not. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, so that's exactly it, actually. I think, you know, of course he was part of the plan, and of course his uh, intervention was meant to be, but I don't think he was in on it. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Yeah, that's, uh, that's it. Did we wrap up Zod? Are we done with Zod? Uh, yeah, unless you yeah. want to jump back in. Uh, I think I pretty much said my point. I mean, the whole point was basically, isn't it fascinating that after all these years, we disagree on why Zod intervened? And, and yeah, I know it's a little too uh, specific a case to mind-read Zod, 
But I just found it interesting that we came to different conclusions. And I agree that I I don't think I was of the right mind when I initially said he was course correcting because it does imply that he knew there was a correct course to be on. But he did it did end up playing a role in course correcting the Falcons onto a yeah. path that led to the eclipse. I mean, I, that, that's yeah, that's I, I agree on that. That's really, I, honestly, all I meant. And then I kind of extrapolated that into what Zod knew at the time. Well, I, I totally agree on that point. That's actually why I said originally that uh, uh, I had a problem with uh, the wording because I, I totally agree that, uh, you know, he was playing that, that role, you know. But uh, well, I, like I said to Griffiths earlier, uh, the point is just uh, I, I don't think he was in on the plan, you know. That's, uh, yeah, that's pretty much just it. And, you know, who cares? Uh, okay, shit. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think we pretty much wrapped up. Let's move on to <laughs> movies, TV, and video games. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, let's see. I'm still, this, I'm just gonna, you know, take over with my Diablo 3 report. Never ending updates and constant stories <laughs> from on the scene. I feel like I'm that reporter that's out in the rain or in like Afghanistan <laughs> telling you what's going on, you know, and. <laughs> so let this yeah, news I'm, from Pal. Yeah, it's it's pretty pathetic. I'm like now I'm I'm even trying to get like the achievements now, and I'm like <laughs> I've got my hardcore barbarian to like level fifty. And keep in mind, this guy's only like a server hiccup away from being kaput. So it really is, you know, like the dumbest sort of thing you can engage in gaming wise. Like you're, you know, there's no upside at all other than hey, uh, I've got this dumb character that nobody is going to understand or respect, you know, particularly, like, in your, like, personal life. It's not, like, something you can brag to people about. <laughs> even, yeah. you know, like, even other gamers, it's just like, God, man, <laughs> what are you doing? I'm sure uh, your girlfriend is very proud of you, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's she's especially proud. She, she's actually, just right, from the word go, she's been disgusted by this Diablo 3 stuff. She doesn't understand gaming at all. And this is, like, this is the lowest of the low. I might as well, it's basically Farmville. <laughs> like it's it's the same thing, just farming for you know items. But anyway, uh, what are you playing as? Uh, well, I haven't been playing much uh, these days because uh, I've been very busy with work and other stuff. But I started playing uh, Dark Siders, which uh, Walter nicely gifted me during the Steam series. You know, I oh, know actually yeah, I'm saying bullshit. I, he actually sent me the link to the you know humble THQ bundle. And uh, even though I wasn't ultra interested in the, all the games listed, uh, you know, Darksiders, I, I didn't play it, and I wanted to see what it was all about. So I gave them two bucks. You know, I feel bad, but yeah, two bucks is all I can spare for THQ, uh, even uh, if they have to die for it. So Speaking yeah, I started. Of, uh, oh, yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying I started playing Darksiders. I'm not very far in yet, but uh, so far it's been nice. So yeah, I'll see where it takes me. Yeah, I speak. I was gonna say, speaking of spending two dollars, I got Bird Mania on the 3DS. <laughs> this is, oh, wow. I feel like, yeah, and it's basically a free flash game that you could play online. I mean, it's. I really feel kind of dumb forgetting it, because I thought it was gonna be something a little more involved, and maybe like I don't know an angry. I was. I'm now. I'm hoping. I'm wishing it was like an Angry Birds clone. <laughs> Instead, uh, yeah. It's just, it's basically just one of those games where you fly forward, collecting objects and trying to get a high score, and then you die and then you play again. It's like it's like there's one continue. I don't know if there's endings because I've never gotten far enough, but it seems to be just one continuous level. And it's like yeah. you know, there's there's a million. It's one of the simplest forms of game. I was I mean I was wondering why there was a two dollar 3ds game, 
you know, since it's it's actually in 3D, it's not the DSiWare downloadable, and I really regret not getting one of the DSi two dollar games because it looked like there was some good ones. Yeah, you might have uh, you know get an um, Metroid Two, you know, for three. I think well, it's three dollars. So. I've already got Metroid Two, so no, <laughs> no worries okay. there. <laughs> but, oh, you're uh, a good guy then. I always knew you were a man oh, of fine I've got, taste. I've got the original cartridge in my drawer, and and I've got it on the 3DS. <laughs> nice. You know, I I joke about you know my still playing Diablo three, but it's like I've actually gotten you know my money's worth out of that game that I'm still playing it. Like I've got these other games on the 3DS and uh, sitting you know on my shelf that I've gotten for the 3DS that you know I don't play as much as that. It's like I'd I'd really be better off if I only had Diablo three and like didn't have as many of those other games. <laughs> yeah, that, you know, not playing as much. I guess in that regard, uh, it's been a good you know a good uh, investment. At the same time, it's ruining my life, so that's, uh, <laughs> that's yeah. yeah. I've actually got many, many games I should finish to play, but you know, you know, particularly on PC. But the thing is, I've got no time. At least I don't take the time. Still, you know, taking care of stuff at work, or you know, because I moved recently, so I still haven't finished. You know, there's always more to do. You know, always one thing left to arrange and such. So, but uh, what did you think about the Wii U? You know, it's launched recently. I all I the only experience I've had with it is actually like looking at the selection in stores. Like I was uh, I was at Target the other day, and I was just looking at its aisle, and it's like it's funny because it's like there's huge Wii section and a big 3DS section relatively, and then there's like the Wii U section, and it's like you know five games, <laughs> you know at least that's how it feels. <laughs> you know it's like it's like wow. Why is this even here? It's like, you know, it's like usually at a launch you want, you know. I mean, obviously you don't have that many launch games, but it feels like almost like it's launched too early. Like, you know, well, it's one of these things where it's like, you know, it's like why not go as soon as you can and get your foot in the door? But at the same time, like, how you get into, you know, first impressions are important. And sometimes yeah. it's maybe it would be better to come out later with more, you know, with more in your arsenal, more ready. Well, the thing is, I actually think uh, it's got uh, more games than that. Uh, I think uh, the number is 23. It was really like 10, but... <laughs> yeah, I think it's got uh, 23 games out. But uh, the thing is, most of them are, you know, ports from uh, multi-platform games. So you've got uh, Mass Effect 3. You know, one of the best games on the Wii U is Mass Effect 3. So I did the see thing that. Is, I thought that was yeah. The thing is, I don't think too many people are going to... I mean, that's not a system seller. You know, people don't buy a console for games that's been out on other consoles for six months. So, yeah, I think uh, Nintendo's really going to have to release, uh, you know, a system seller, big, you know, game, a series game, in order for people to really plunge for it. I like know I... I bo- too. <laughs> well, you no, know, I was, just... I've been hearing that. I see that on all the websites, and people are like, "There's no launch title on the Wii U as fantastic as Wii Sports, the classic best Nintendo game ever created." And yeah. you know, I play. I didn't really play Wii Sports. I like. I think a friend, you know, I brought it over, and we played it. Uh, you know, the boxing game, or I'm not even sure it's the same game. The boxing and the tennis is that really like an all-time classic Nintendo title? Is it consi- well, I know it like sold, you know, like crazy. But wasn't yeah. it bundled with the Wii? Yeah, it, it was. Uh, actually, it was bundled with the Wii uh, in North America and Europe, but it was sold separately in Japan, and they actually bought it separately in Japan, which blows my mind. You know, the thing is, <laughs> it seemed to me. Yeah. It seemed to me like I thought it was sort of like, hey, it's a demo package of what you know what the system yeah. can 
Now, if only they wrapped a game around it. Yeah, pretty much. You know, it, it actually reminds me more of the you know demo CD I had with the original PlayStation when I bought it. You know, where I could play. You know, Jumping Flash. You know, the first level. It's, it's you know I played the game. I don't know, maybe forty minutes. And as yeah. that includes the times I showed it to other people, well, maybe I'm exaggerating. Let's say three hours, including the times I showed it to other people. But yeah, it was a tech demo, and um, yeah, I don't know. It was yeah, it was cute, but nothing more for me. And I never really had much interest in the game. I mean, that's not why yeah. I bought the system. But um, amazingly, it seems a lot of people actually love the game, and that's like yeah. it's what sticks to their mind when you talk about the Wii's, uh, you know, uh, Wii Sports. So yeah, you know, fuck. Yeah, it was it was being talked about like it's Super Mario World or something. I'm like, really? Like this? Because it, it's funny because I, fi- I feel like if Nintendo did try to release something like that for the Wii U, because I feel like these these game editors and things, they're responding not to its objective quality, but to its success. They're talking yeah. about it like, oh, this was a real important game because it sold a lot, not because it was actually like a great game that they should try to like recapture that. Like they didn't even say like, Where's the Wii Sports U? Because no one, you know, I don't think anyone would really be excited about that. Or like, oh yeah. my god, we've got to go out and buy, you know, must-have title. Even they weren't suggesting that. So, I don't know. They, I feel like they should have a Zelda game at one of these launches eventually. Yeah, that's well, my, you know, but it's, that's uh, my that's my big big idea. Another Zelda game. <laughs> that's why I'm not in the game industry. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think they probably consider Twilight Princess to have been a large title for the Wii. You know. I think yeah. that's that's how they view I guess, it. I but... guess that's true. <laughs> yeah, it's just so it's to true. Me it's but... like it was always a GameCube game. Yeah, well, that, that's the truth of it. Uh, it it was a launch title, but yeah, not really a real one, you know. So yeah, that was that's like actually it's sort of a unique circumstance because it came out on Wii like a month earlier, right? Yeah. Okay, so that's weird. Like the port was out before the original. Well, <laughs> like... you know, it's because they wanted people to get the Wii in order to get the game because they knew otherwise people would get, get would just get the GameCube game and you know not care about the motion controls since they were not really I mean they, they were not bad in the game but the game was not built around them and since then with Sky of Sword we've seen that anyway it's not like it's a be all and all of uh, of you know Zelda games so yeah. but the thing is about with ports you know they've Got this, uh, I wouldn't say it's equivalent, but you know, Nintendo Land, they call it, which is some kind of, you know, uh, attraction park thing, like, you know, uh, and it's mini games, but themed around, uh, you know, <clears throat> classic Nintendo games. So you've got like a Metroid one, uh, you know, Pikmin one, uh, uh, what's it called? <laughs> you know, another one where, shit, Animal, Animal World, I think. I hope Animal it's not City. like the Disneyland game for regular Nintendo. That was hard as shit. <laughs> like that haunted house. <laughs> no, no. Well, apparently it's not too bad, but it's also not too good. You know, I think it was reviewed more fairly than Wii Sports. Uh, in that people give, you know, say it's it's good, but not mind blowing. And uh, yeah, that's what they're, they're bundling with the system. But it's not like it's not bundled with every system. You either get it naked. You get it with uh, this game, or you get it with uh, Zombie U, which is something uh, Ubisoft did. I saw that. Yeah, I saw that at the stores, and it looked, you know, it looked, it looked very generic. Like other than like the the most like interesting thing about it was the way they, you know, they spelled zombie like the old like Italian zombie movies, (laughs) and uh, 
and the U. And, you know, it has a picture of, like, you know, just uh, looks like a British, you know, or Russian, you know, like on the cover, depending on what uniform you're thinking of. And, uh, and yeah, I don't know. It looks like, you know, just like generic zombie game. It didn't really jump out at me. Yeah. And the thing I wanted to ask you about the Wii U is because uh, I have no real, like, urge to get it. There's no, like, I wouldn't say, like, in my heart, I, f- I feel no need to get it. But in my mind, sometimes I think about it, like, Hey, I've got, you know, a Wii and I heard you can transfer your your stuff over and like actually make an account. So theoretically, like the things you get from like the Nintendo store, like the e-store, you could save yeah. forever with each oncoming system that way. Now that's appealing to me. And yeah. you know, all the Wii like accessories are supposed to work. Now, what do you can you confirm that for me just like uh is that true that you can uh set up your stuff? I, this is something I could Google, but since we're on the show. Well, yeah, uh one the one thing is that it emulates the Wii. So, to in order to access your virtual console stuff, you have to go into the Wii emulation. So it's not like your, you know, uh, virtual console games which you got on the Wii are showing up on the main menu of the Wii U. You have to go into the Wii emulation menu, then they show up. So, yeah, I'm so already th- skeptical. Yeah, so this stuff is pretty, I mean, it's not very convenient. Uh, that being said, other than that, yeah, you've got a menu and all purchases from now on uh, are available, uh, you know, I should be available on future consoles, you know, from the account. And does, it, does it have everything that, does it have the same exact lineup or library? Does it have the complete library of Wii games that you could download uh, before Wii U? No, no, no. And, and no have it on it, Wii U menu? No, it's separate. For now, you don't have the virtual console on the Wii U. It's uh, it's not been ported yet. They've got an eShop on which you've got some stuff, but they don't have uh, all the titles, you know, yet. Every three weeks, they're going to release a classic Nintendo game on there. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, people have been hoping that it won't be the case, but uh, we have to see. That being said, they've also introduced the same system you have on the 3DS in that you can buy retail games directly from uh, the eShop. So, yeah, yeah that's that, pretty uh, cool. That's kind of... Uh, is there any other system already doing that? Like, is that available yeah. on PlayStation 3 and Xbox? Yeah, I think you can do it on Xbox and Precious Treasures. The thing is, I haven't uh, tried to do it, you know, and I haven't been playing my Xbox in a while because I haven't plugged it back yet. But, yeah, uh, yeah I think uh, the boss allow it. Uh, Sony has been the most proactive in that regard. I mean, you, uh, they had, you know, that stuff with the PSP and all PlayStation games, you know, a while back. And they've tried, of yeah. course, with PSP Go to create a system that only got games, you know, online, and it was a pretty big failure. But you know, I'm not sure it was only. I'm not sure it was because of the, you know, lack of, re- you know, retail, you know, games. I don't think that that yeah. was the reason. So anyway, and actually, it like it creates a weird conflict for me when, like, you know, uh, Ocarina of Time, which I bought for 3DS since I'm a huge fan of that game, you know, to sort of get, like, the ultimate edition of it. They bring it out on the eShop, and then I think, well, I'd much rather have one that I just, you know, I don't have to plug in and out of the system, in, you know, which, you know, there's a zero-sum game where I, I can only yeah. have one cartridge in there. It'd be much nicer just to have them all on the system. And it's sort of, like, I feel like they should, I don't know how they would do this, but it would be nice if there were a way, like, when you, you know, sort of like with Steam, if you own the game, if you could make it so you could also download it instead yeah. of me having to buy it separately if I want it on the 3DS, which, you know, it's like that would be insane unless I give away the one I have as a gift or something. But Well, the thing is, 
you know, uh, I was actually talking to my brother about that earlier, about Steam, you know, the fact it's convenient to have everything online on Steam and search. You don't have to go to the store or anything. But the thing is, the day they decide to take it away from you, why you're fucked, you know? So, yeah. but at the same time, you know, those old CDs of Baldur's Gate I've got from, you know, 15 years ago, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not under the illusions that I'm going to take them, you know, back out and, you know, install them and I still own the game or anything like that. So I'd rather pay $2 and get it on Steam. Switch to disc four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much, yeah. yeah. It's like those days are hopefully, yeah, it's like it would be hard to go back. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I, I guess uh, it would be nice, but I think the truth is uh, digital formats are much more convenient. And as Walter can, you know, pretty much, uh, you know, would say, agree since he's bought like, I don't know, 400 games on Steam or something like that. How, how many are, is it? He's played like 10 of them too, I hear. Yeah, pre- <laughs> pretty much, yeah. He just, you know, he likes the sales, but other than that, he just, you know, buys them and collects them. He's a collector, actually. Can yeah, you guys I'll hear me? Can you guys hear me? Yeah, Here we, we go. hear you, yeah. I was having mic problems. I had to unplug uh-huh. and replug my mic. Oh, okay. yeah, I thought I would bring you on when I, you know, made fun of your uh, Steam collection. Yeah, <laughs> you know, would... <laughs> the other the other day I um I was checking my list and I was like, oh man, I have too many games. I have like two hundred and seventy six Steam games, and I was like, wait, how many do I have? So I checked. Yeah, I have four hundred and forty four Steam games. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> Jesus. wow. Yeah, no, you know um, what? I feel I can't I can't make fun because like that's how I feel about my 3ds. It's like if I wish I had just kept like the 20 free games I got for the ambassador program, and that's mm-hmm. it. Because it's like I haven't even played those. I feel like an idiot. It's like I should have beaten those before I bought anything else. But yeah, it's just yeah, not how it works. You know, you want to play things, right? I'm, well, um, if we're going to talk about Steam stuff, I, I want to first say that it's kind of an addiction because uh, Valve has turned the everyday, you know, 20 or 30 year old male into a bargain hunter. And it's a sick, sad, yeah. like, yeah, pretty much. It didn't, it, I wasn't always like this. You know, <laughs> I wasn't always, I wasn't always looking at the fucking, essentially the coupon page of every weekend going, Oh, what's the deals this week? Because what'll happen is they'll get the hook. you be like this. A $60 game will be $5 for one day only. And you're like, fuck, how can I not spend $5 yeah. on that? You'd Even be a they, fool not to get that game. <laughs> and then what will happen is you'll you'll miss a couple deals like that, and then you go, oh, fuck it, I'm never going to miss a deal like that ever again. So you always check every weekend, and you end up spending more time looking for deals than you do playing for games. And I'm sure that sounds – maybe that sounds crazy to some people, but I guarantee you – Game outside that, you know, the game. That happens I, to thousands of people now. Yeah, I don't think it sounds crazy to anybody. You know, this used to be something that was almost exclusive to women, you know. Exactly. Like, you know, for sales of clothes. And you know, we used, I mean, the guys used to be like, fuck this shit. You never wear this stuff. Why did you buy it? It's not so cheap. And now we are just in the exact same spot. I mean, rather, this kind of uh, marketing was brought on to a wider audi- audience. And uh, yeah, we're just, you know, falling for it like everybody else. It used to be yeah. it used to be manly to spend more money than you need to do. Like, oh, it's fifty dollars. Well, here's sixty, bitch. <laughs> it's like a cool thing to do. Now it's like sixty dollars. I don't know. I'm waiting for a half off deal myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, and I I find myself not going on Steam because yeah, that I'm on there and I'm just like I'm cruising, and it's like I don't even I don't even have time to play the games I have. Why am I cruising for oh, you yeah. know like another yeah. game? This past this past. Uh, 
Steam deal was the was the darkest time for me because I just had my son and we're talking about buying a new car and all I can do is like, oh man, Steam has these games for five dollars. I, I didn't I didn't end up spending too much money. I only spent I think it was sixty seven or something like that total. Uh, you know, and I, it's not a big deal, but I ended up getting a bunch of good deals, guys. I got XCOM for twenty dollars. I got Dishonored. Are you like telling your kid like bouncing him on your knee? Daddy did good. <laughs> I got some good deals. Related to that, you know, in the back of my head, I've told Azil this before. I'm like, I'm like curating a collection that I'll hand down to my grandson and my grandkid. Like, look at all these games that you'll never want to play when you're my. Yeah, they're gonna be like, they're gonna be like, you have to use your hands. (laughs) It's like a baby's toy. It's basically (laughs) worthless. It's I've I've probably played maybe fifteen to twenty percent of the games that I own. That, that's that, that that's a fact. Then again, you know, you're telling that to people like me who've got, you know, a whole, you know, a rack full of young animal, you know, magazines. <laughs> written written in a language I can't I can't even read. So I mean yeah. No but you know, no one can like you raised a scary point and I mean I this will send a chill down Walter's spine. Is that, you know, it's all well and good until they just, until Steam goes away or they take it away from you. Sure. Yeah. Well, and then it's like, you know, then it's like you don't even have anything to give to ungrateful grandchildren that they don't want. Yeah, because in any case, they'll never allow you to, you know, give it to your, you know, children. It will be like, no, 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 it's, you know, personal stuff. So it's no big deal. It's on my domain. Well, by then, you know, like they're going to have yeah. like, you're going to have to like, do the retina scan and fingerprint in order to access your games. <laughs> so you won't even be able to just give them your account, you know. <laughs> yeah, they'll be taking it directly from your DNA, you know. It's just to avoid cheating. It's to avoid cheating in the games, guys. Yeah, you've got you to know, do it. Even, even if that happened, even if they were like, oh, take our games away, you know, I wouldn't feel that deprived because it, it's not like... It would be, just you, it it'd be like a relief. Yeah, it would be a relief. You're like, oh, fine. Because you know, you like, you'd be like, okay, I'm done with this. You know, I'm walking yeah. away. Like, you know, you'd be so delusion, you know, disillusioned. But it would be like, ah, you know, you'd walk nice. away only until the next deal. You know. Yeah. <laughs> you know the, 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 I told you I'm out of this life. You were the best. <laughs> we need you back. <laughs> this, this is a bigger deal than ever before. The absolute worst part of this whole phenomenon is that good games that, that deserve your full price, people will wait because that's the mentality now. That's the, that's the, that's the idea people have of purchasing games now for PC is, well, I'm just going to wait on Steam until it's, you know, $5 or $10. Why should I spend 50 or $60 even if the game's 100% worthwhile? And don't you know, nowadays games are just $1. Just worth one dollar on my yeah, phone. $1. On my phone, they're just one dollar. I'm not going to pay any more than that. Two dollars yeah. for this, of this course, game. It's, of course, it's exacerbated on iPhone where it's for two dollars. You can two dollars. Well, they'll, they'll have a, a game that's base price is two dollars or one ninety nine, and they'll have weekend sale. It's half off at ninety nine cents, and everyone's like, I don't know, is it worth it? <laughs> uh, you know, and like here's the thing: like Azil bought Dark Souls for me for my birthday. And I feel like that's a game I would have spent like $100 on, you know. And, and I'm not saying, damn you, is you for depriving me of spending $100. But that's a game that everyone should fucking spend a full price on, you know. You shouldn't wait for a deal for a game no. like this. Anyway, rest assured, I bought it in euros. So, yeah, it was probably like $100 anyway. <laughs> well, that's the thing. You bought this it this way. Like, you're, if your time is money and you take like an you know some sort of hourly rate, like how many thousands of dollars have you spent on dark souls or i or me on diablo yeah. 3 
Like, yeah. it's, like it's a game where I've literally I've spent something so much more precious than money on it, and and you know, and frankly, alienated people in my life <laughs> like while doing it. I've actually gotten to the point. This is sort of a tangent. I've gotten to the point where I, the way I play games, the way me and my wife interact, the way you guys have seen me this and podcasts interact. If something comes up and I have to put something on pause, I don't mind doing it. Like my life has come before games, like for yeah, like five or six, a decade. You know, as long as I've been living with my wife, I've never put games before her. But of course, I've heard stories of people, mostly involving MMOs or involving guilds, that yeah, that becomes your social network, and like they're saying it's imperative that you stay for this raid. That's when it can become a real problem. But I mostly play single player games where it's no big deal. Yeah, just you know, leave yeah. it for a bit. So you know, that's, that's a big part of why I don't play MMORPGs anymore. It's because you know why I played EverQuest. It was it was neat, but you know, you're always online. The, the thing is, when you're not online, you know that other people are, are you know they're still advancing and you are not. Even when you're max level and max everything, until you've done the whole game in and inside and out, you know, basically you're always needed. I mean, you always need to be there if you want to sure. keep up with you know the world and uh, and after that it's yeah it's because you are you know needed for the raid or stuff like that but uh, yeah it's really a, a bane for your social life I mean at least that's how I tend to see it it's not the kind of you know saying MMORPGs can be played from time to time it's just I don't know who plays them like that but these guys are losers anyway <laughs> that's, that's not how you play an MMORPG to me yeah. you don't play well, it I mean- you know like once a week that is that is how I played WoW, and I hated it. So obviously I was doing something wrong, or the game just sucked. But uh, <laughs> I just don't like I don't like playing with I don't like playing with other people that I don't know. If I'm friends with you and we have like a relationship, we'll have a blast together. I mean, I made I made a lot of good friends playing Left 4 Dead 2. I played it almost every day, and we I made a great crew of friends. But whenever you play a public game with fucking strangers, it was an awful experience. And I mean, I, I imagine that's how it is for most games. That's just the one that I yeah. You know, I spent more than 500 hours playing Left 4 Dead 2 over the course of my career playing it, but, yeah, games. Well, so I was, gone, yeah. I was gone for most of the discussion. I will wrap up super quick. I've been right. playing Super Mario World while I burp my child. That's right. I can do both. Uh, I have been playing Super Mario Sticker Star for 3DS, which is extremely disappointing given the legacy of that series, which is... All about quirky characters and funny dialogue and funny oh, situations. I'm glad I didn't buy it then. So this far, is it's extremely stripped down and streamlined to the point where I wonder why they even bothered making it. It's you just you know why you know why it's probably so streamed down and you know stripped down and streamlined so you could buy it, so you could download it. Yeah, I mean that's what I did. I downloaded it. <laughs> it yeah, is, actually, I read an Iwata asks interview with uh, the people that made the game. The people that made the game have this massive heritage with. Uh, dating back to Super Mario RPG, the key people involved have been making these games ever since Super Mario RPG, which I loved. So you'd think they'd know what works and what doesn't work with the series, but it, it just is just a, it's a travesty. Anybody who's played Mario RPG, Paper Mario, and then the, the, the GameCube one, yeah, playing this, it's just a sad, sad story of what's happened with this franchise. The GameCube one is really good. It is. It's great. Actually, my favorite is still Mario RPG. Uh, yeah, I love that game. Thousand Thousand Year Doors, the GameCube one. I had I had a good time with it, but I mean Mario RPG is, is is the best to me. Superstar Saga is also very very good for the DS. If you ever get a chance to play any of those three games, but that's also extremely similar. Anyway, other than that, I've been playing Assassin's Creed Three, which I'm kind of putting on hold until I get a better computer, which is probably never. <laughs> no, 
It doesn't. Do you think they wish that they had made it like it's, it's the Revolutionary War, right? Yeah. Oh no, no. It's yeah. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Revolutionary War. Do you so, think they wish they made it Civil War to tie in with like Lincoln, or do you think they think gamers probably don't care like <laughs> in that regard? I think they did what they did because they could involve so many like. Well, okay. First of all, their their version of American history is hilarious. Of course, highly questionable, right? It's <laughs> off Montreal's version of history. It's just like pretty funny. Uh, Benjamin Franklin is just like shows up in the streets asking you to find his glossary pages in the streets. Oh my god! Uh, what's the other one? I don't want to spoil anything, but they should have made it the Civil War, and you have to like assassinate Lincoln at the end or something. It would have been like so controversial and like offensive and dumb. <laughs> You can assassinate George Washington, but you end the you end the game, and then you have to restart restart from your last save point. Wow! Uh, I mean, it, it's just a little weird. Uh, yeah, the, it's because Washington is like the great assassin master. Uh, yeah, yeah, basically. Well, he's <laughs> uninvolved until later on. Anyway, um, I've only played like five hours of it right now. The biggest problem I have with the game so far is, you know. You know, the, you know the term player agency in games is basically the actions that a game system allows you to do. Like, can you jump? Yeah. Can you attack? Can you, how 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 do you interact with your environment? Is it a high level of interaction, or is it extremely scripted? So the problem with Assassin's Creed Three is they've taken the original formula of Assassin's Creed, which is you go kill this guy and figure out how to do it. That was the original concept of the game. It's evolved to this point where everything sort of happens in a cutscene. And then they let you loose. Then you hit a couple buttons, and then you're done with that scene, and then a cutscene starts. That's how Assassin's Creed 3 is, and it's really sad because, you know, the actual part where I'm playing the game is not very fun because I'm honestly, I'm pretty much just hitting the kill button and then hitting forward to sneak around enemies and stuff, but mm. it's not it's not nearly as good as what the series has done in the past. And I think I brought to, do. to mind for me Metal Gear Solid, that description. Yeah. Sort of where that series went. I never played four, so that's what, I, that's what I've heard is what happens with it. But. Yeah, that, four is basically you're watching cutscenes, and it's almost like you know, yeah. the the gameplay feels like quick time events, you know, relatively speaking, because you're watching a four hour cutscene and then you play for like you know, and it only takes you an hour yeah. to do whatever you need to do. But I, I it, this the the problem I have with the game, it could probably it could disappear for all I know after I've through with the first couple hours. I've heard it's a pretty long game, like twenty something hours. Only yeah. then maybe it maybe it opens up and it maybe it gets a little I heard for what it's worth, I heard it starts very slow and it takes a long time to really, you know you know, really yeah, let you loose. So maybe maybe you're still in that phase. I, I know I know for a fact I'm technically still in the tutorial section of the game because of the player that I'm currently playing as. Uh, so I know there's more to the game than is there, but I'm just saying I'm five hours and four or five hours into the game. Feels handholdy. That's a little disappointing for me, who's someone who's played you know three Assassin's Creed games. Also, five hours in and you're in the tutorial part of the game. I mean, it's not technically a tutorial. They're still orienting you to basically the the game story and the basic mission structure and the things you can do in missions. Is what's happening right now. Good God. Work. It still seems like like five hours in, you should be sort of in the thick of it. I feel like. Well, yeah, it's like a Final Fantasy game. If it were a Call of Duty game, you'd already be you know be an hour away from the end of it at that point. <laughs> so, what else I've been doing? I wanted to say really quick. One of the best games I scored in the Steam Weekend Deal was a game called Cargo Commander. Something I did not think much of at all until I started playing it. It's just it looks like this really simple platformer where. You start and you're, you're, you basically it's a roguelike. I mean, by roguelike, 
You start in a little cube, which is your home, and you're in space. You hit a button, and other cubes are attracted to you magnetically, and they just crash into your ship. And then you jump into them, and you collect uh, various items, and then you shoot enemies. That's the basic concept. But it goes, it takes that really basic, basic concept of, oh, it's a platformer where things changed based on what's landed into your ship. And it has this weird, really cool hook. So the premise is you're this kind of space trucker, very aliens-like. And there's like, pictures in a little room of your family, and there's, there's a kind of like country music playing in your home room, which you walk out of to go into the main part of the game. But you hear it every time you start the game up. You hear this like, kind of like twangy country music. What happens in the game is after you've uh, a couple cubes have crashed into your ship and you're exploring uh, as you get further and further away from your ship, at the end of each mission, a wormhole opens up and sucks in all the cubes. And so you have to fight to get back to your home base. Sometimes you get launched into space and you're kind of in this orbit around your home. And you hear that twangy country music kind of sort of playing in the distance. And that's how you guide yourself back to your home. It's like you listen to that sound. and you're sort That's of, pretty nice. Yeah, it's really neat. And so you're getting back home, and then you get an email from your wife or your kids saying, Honey, we miss you. It's just a really, a really super simple way to ground your game. So few games have that kind of emotional resonance. And it's just a super simple clever thing they did with this game that otherwise I would think not much of it, but it really it reminds me of, uh, like the mother series in earthbound. Yeah, absolutely. Like at least just that, yeah, that kind of, that aspect. Just really impressed with the other, otherwise kind of not very noteworthy game was able to hook me like that. I thought that was really cool. That was nice for a seal, but it, it never dropped lower than $3. And I bought rage for you for $5. So, Nice. Well, I'll get it as soon as I'm done with. I'll play it as soon as I'm done with Dark Siders. Yeah, yeah. How's that, by the way? Well, uh, I mean, I'm just at the beginning. So far, it's it's nice, I guess. I mean, I'll see. Well, it's, it's it reminds me a bit of uh, Soul River, you know. Mm, yeah, you're right. Did you get any, uh, demons burping in your face yet? Uh, I've I've you know met some fat ones. I don't think they burped at me, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Times in the game. Yeah, I've, I've, I'm just still at the very beginning, like, you know, past, you know, the introduction uh, section, but, uh, I'm still not very far. Visually, it's pretty impressive, although I don't, I can't say I like the art style, but it looks really cool, you know? It looks yeah, cool. I think the art style is, uh, very strongly inspired by, uh, you know, uh, White Dwarf stuff, you know, the Warhammer series and stuff. At least that, that's how it looks to me, which is also, uh, the inspiration for Warcraft in general, so. I think it's all from the same source. What's funny is I think my dad is playing Darksiders 2 right now. Oh, nice. I heard the the second game is uh, much better than the first one, actually. Hmm. I heard... He says he's enjoying it, that they've added, you know, some stuff, but but, uh, more of the same. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Why you play those games, because I've heard Darksiders has the best quote-unquote story. Whereas Darksiders 2, it's more about the mechanics and the story kind of takes a backseat. But, uh, mm-hmm. I didn't think the story in Darksiders 1 was particularly good myself, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't really seem to be, you know, brilliant or anything so far. I wanted to, oh yeah, speaking of uh, which, uh, you know, you mentioned your 444, you know, Steam games that you've got, like the collection. Yeah. And, you know, as called you a collector, is, uh, speaking of my dad, he's got that same thing, except he's actually got, like, a closet full of like game boxes like from the late 80s and throughout the 90s and it's like the not like the game bo- like not the computer game boxes like we know them now 
but like the big ones. Yeah. That are like, you know, basically special, like would be the equivalent of like a special edition, like a complete TV series on DVD. I think we're pretty much done with games, are we not? Do you guys have yeah. games? We okay. did it, we yeah. actually kind of did it twice, because Az and I went on about it for a good while. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I'll, like basically I'll... from the beginning of when you left last time, we just went into games. So, um, Azil, I want to give you an opportunity to leave if you wanted to, because me and Griff were going to talk about spoilers for uh, Skyfall. If you yeah. want to stick around, you totally can. I just, honestly, I think it's something you should see, and I don't want to ruin it for you, so. Yeah, sure. So, we, we do the member questions another time. Because oh, crap, the... yeah, we'll still we'll see those real quick. Can we knock those out real quick, you think? Well, yeah, we can, but after that, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm speaking French now. After that, I have to to go because it's been a while, so. Sure, well, I can do it, you know, I'm I'm quick with questions, so that's cool with me. Oh, uh, it's fine, it's fine. Berserk MJM asks, if Miura died today, god damn it, these questions. How would yeah. you feel about the series as it stands? Would you want for the series to going forward? I don't think about Mira dying. Uh, it just yeah. seems a little. It seems a little morbid to me to focus on to yeah. focus on such a thing. So I mean, of course I'd look, I, of course I would want the series to know the full story before I'm dead. <laughs> Man. Yeah, but uh, I mean, it's just not something I give a lot of thought to. I mean, I, I'm sure he'll be fine. I'm sure the series will continue. I'm sure he'll finish his work. So I don't. I don't really have a lot of doubts. In that and regard. do other series after it's over. Yeah. Yeah. So as you know, as interesting as it would be for it to become like this great unfinished, you know, work, like you know, I'd much rather just get the ending. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and have him be alive. So yeah, like as said, do other things. So I don't know. I, I'd be, yeah, I'd be unsatisfied because it would be incomplete. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. Uh, so happy. Anyway, so, yeah, I, I would still say, you know, if Berserk was unfinished you know for any reason i would still think it's uh the best you know fantasy story ever regardless it, it has already achieved so much and in fact it, yeah. it kind of it kind of frustrates me that it's not recognized more than it is it got that one uh award in like 2002 to me he's accomplished so much since then and it, it just seems like he deserves quite a bit more but whatever yeah and the thing is i think uh, it goes beyond just you know the manga world you know or the graphic novel world i think it's, it's really a really good story that uh few if any uh literary you know you know stories can uh match right next question have you ever shopped on black friday cyber monday any past experience i kind of covered that a little bit but i've never actually shopped physically on a black friday because stuff like that never really mattered to me like getting $50 yeah. off of a TV like that's never been like a big thing with me uh, like I, I, if I need a piece of hardware or something like that I would just get it when I needed it that's just, how, that's just the kind of person I am I don't deal shop in reality I do deal shop for PC games just cause that's how you know <laughs> that's, 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 what, that's what I've become thanks to Valve so but um yeah, I do online deal shopping, but not in person. However, I will say real quick, in high school, um, I would go – whenever I first got my car, I drove up to the uh, the mall in Atlanta where I lived just to watch the crowds after Thanksgiving because I thought it was fascinating to see people, <laughs> thousands and thousands of people and gathering to shop till you drop kind of stuff. I just thought it was funny to watch. I didn't yeah. Up, I just wanted to watch the chaos basically. That was the only yeah, thing I've I never – I've never been one for for that. I hate lines. I don't like yeah, pandem- I don't like I'm not a fan of pandemonium, <laughs> you know, and yeah. and my only experience of that really is we've got like in my hometown we have these outlet malls like for all the like fancy Los Angeles stores. 
And uh, one night I was coming home from like a Christmas dinner at a friend's house. I went over after dinner at my house. I went over to uh, his grandmother's house, one town over. And I'm coming back into town. And as I'm coming in, oh no, it was uh, yeah Thanksgiving. And uh, I see these lights, you know, these car lights. And I'm like, you know, and it's on the the on ramp. I need to get on. I'm like, what the hell is that? I just see a bunch of red and you know yellow lights. And I realize it's cars lined up on the freeway, trying, you know, on our you know, and this is a quiet little town, you know, after nine o'clock, everyone's asleep. And mm-hmm. so I'm like, what the hell are all these cars doing out here? And I realized, you know, oh my God, everyone's, it was like a, like a zombie movie. It said people actually in their cars, like, you know, trying to get to the stores. <laughs> and it was like, to me, it was like, how am I going to get home? I don't want to get on one of these on ramps, you know, yeah, or off ramps. And I'm just like, you know, oh my God. So I had to go, I had to sneak into town, like through back roads and avoid, you know, like any, and there were like random, like heavy traffic areas where just lines of cars were, you know, filling up our city. And I was, I was really resentful because I was like, you know, these aren't, you know, people from here. They're coming from the freeways to get you, to these outlets, you know. You, you know what, you know what cars resemble when they're stuck in traffic around shopping districts? What? It, re- it resembles kind of Dawn of the Dead, just like kind of shuffling yeah. around, you know, <laughs> shuffling it's, around. It's just like, place. it's, because the cars aren't moving, it looks like they're just stuck in like a band. It looks very post-apocalyptic. Yeah. Uh, well, as far as I'm concerned, uh, Thanksgiving isn't celebrated where I live, so I guess uh, I've never experienced uh, Black Friday or Cyber Monday or anything like that. Okay. Uh, that being said, I went to change my tires the other day and uh, to a place where it's some kind of you know, sprawling, you know, shopping mall, something really, you know, an aberration. It's giant. It has a lot of a lot of, you know, shops everywhere. And so there were a lot of cars there. And it was uh, it was kind of ni- nightmarish, you know. And I think the next time I'll go, you know, change them at another shop. Just, you know, even if I have to pay more. Because, you know, the time I lost going there and getting out was really too much. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I'm a big advocate of, like, it's worth it to pay a little more, like, you know, to save that kind of time and stress. Yeah. Oh yeah, that happens to all the time here. I mean, in the states, when you're trying to get gas, for example, and maybe there's two gas stations, right? One of them has gas for five cents cheaper a gallon, and it has thousands of people there. And the next one is five cents more, but there's no one there. Guess which one I'm choosing. You know? <laughs> yeah, I will spend a little bit more so I can get the hell out of there. Good God. Next question, what do you think about this event infringing further on to Thursday, the consumer attitude of the United States in general? I mean, I think we've already pretty much stated it. I think it's pretty gross. I mean, again, I'm not one to deal hunt in person, and I think sacrificing potential family time to go buy a mattress for $20 less or whatever, like, who who gives a shit, you know? It's just stuff. Well, I mean, there was an interesting, like, a consumer report, like, about basically, like, stores and corporations, like, that are in sales have ru- are like ru- ruining every major holiday <laughs> that it's really yeah. corrosive like to you know family you know if you're concerned about family values at all like it is like it's a it's a really bad thing the way that you know i actually it was an interesting experience my girlfriend and i went to best buy like it was like on friday the we or not i'm trying to think what day it was but it was before thanksgiving it was like the day before thanksgiving but before mm-hmm. Thanksgiving Day, and yeah, it was Wednesday, and there were people lined up outside the store camping out on the side, oh. and it was auction. And so yeah. they were going to spend their entire Thanksgiving outside of Best Buy to go in for the Black Friday deals, 
Oh, and God. it was just like, you know, oh my God, you know, it was, and it was cold out too. It was like, you know, it could have been, I, it's been sprinkling here recently. I'm just thinking like, this is horrible. I'd like to, I'd like, like to say that that's what you saw was an aberration because I've covered, I've written as, an, as a journalist, a Black Friday, Cyber Monday type stories before. And most tours that I've interviewed always say, we don't allow people to camp out because we'd like to protect those family values. If we see people camping out before Thanksgiving, we'll say, I'm sorry, you can't, if you're not here to shop, then you can't stand in line. I'm sorry. They'll kick them out until, you know, after Thanksgiving is all, and all that started. But of course they're going to always be outliers, you know, that are going to do that, do that anyway. But, uh, I, I think this is a phenomenon that has started. I may, I say maybe it started, I would say a decade ago, maybe, I don't see it stopping because when it when it comes down to is, you know, these retailer shops have marketing and advertising firms and uh, the ability to entice people, whereas family values, that doesn't really have a big uh, pull anymore. You know, it doesn't have a, a big something that's uh, hammering that into people every day. So I think advertising won, basically. Yeah. Well, it's kind of sad for those people, though. I mean... Uh, I don't know. To me, it's uh, almost a kind of mental illness, you know. Sure. <laughs> I, I can. Hey, I well, can totally relate with my Steam stuff. So yeah, I, I agree. Also, yeah, mental. I mean, it what's the difference to... is the difference for Steam is you do it from your home. You know, when your wife calls you, you just go. You know, oh, yeah. and it, you can it get back me, to it. It, yeah, it, takes, is, it takes me two minutes to look at what deals there are and buy them yeah. and then walk back out. So. Yeah, the, the convenience aspect is a is a big part of it. You know, going yeah. to a shop, camping out for three days. You know, I mean, you have to have got nothing to do to do that. I mean, every no job or you take days off from your job to do that stuff. You know, I mean, <laughs> that, that that got you know. I can understand when you're zealot, like you know, waiting for the iPhone five or some stupid shit like that. You know, you're completely indoctrinated. You know, the ultimate fan fanboy. Why not? I can understand at least that aspect. But if it's to to buy, you know, from something for I don't know what cheaper screws or you know. I don't know what the kind of shit you get from Best Buy, but I don't know. I think it's uh, it's kind of crazy. The last game that I stood in line for, you reminded me. The last, no, no kidding. The last game I stood in line for was Zelda sixty four. I remember. Oh, waiting. I was gonna say that, or I was thinking Mario sixty four. <laughs> like, I didn't wait in line for that. I had a ticket that I'd arranged for. Did you get it from Toys R Us? Of course, of course, I got it. Oh yeah, because you could get those. I remember them, the pre order things. It was yeah. like blue and yellow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I remember I had that for, oh yeah. But Zelda 64, I remember wait, that was a great experience waiting in line, getting that gold cartridge. That was fun. Right before Thanksgiving. I just, I, the last time for me was when I got, I bought a PlayStation 3 just so I could smash it in front of everyone there. They got really upset. I don't know if you saw. No, I didn't. I I believed you for a second there. (laughs) No, I I would have kept it and, you know, played, played some games on it. (laughs) I'm not that. Somewhat yeah, political about it. Somewhat related was that that Zelda sixty four anecdote. That actually was, but that was right before Thanksgiving. I think it was the twenty third of November. It was, uh, and I played Zelda sixty four through my Thanksgiving. So whatever I was saying before, obviously, is bullshit because I happily traded <laughs> family time for Zelda sixty four time. <laughs> well, at that time, but now you've got a new family, one that you've made yourself. Right, that's right. Epona <laughs> yeah, so. and then Zelda and Ganondorf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's different though because you were actually that was like an experience you'd like to have. I don't think on you know 
you you would like to play Zelda 64 any day, let alone through your Thanksgiving. It probably made that a nice like Thanksgiving, you know. Man, Whereas was, no one you... wants to wait out in the cold, you know, for a store. That's just about you know the money. I mean, I'm sure there there is some mania to it. Sure, but it's still you know, I yeah. <laughs> That first time playing Zelda 64, I mean, as much as I say I like Zelda 3 better, of course, Zelda 64 is a, one of those classic moments in gaming, so. Yeah. Anyway, what do you think of the holidays in general? I think I've said enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, honestly, one thing, for me, the early days are pretty much limited to Christmas and the New Year, and uh, yeah, it's a season I, I particularly enjoy. Because it's family time and such, and I don't spend that much time with my family in general, so I always appreciate that. Mm. It's a time, like any sort of time you can chill out, you know. I usually take a week or two off and just, you know, to do shit, you know, just, you know, play games, you know, you know, drink beer, eat, you know, fat food, chocolates, and uh, watch movies and TV series, and yeah, that's about it. No, that's the life, you know. Yep, for me it's about food. That's the biggest part of family. <laughs> food, food and I guess family is kind of goes hand in hand with that. So yeah, that's it for questions, guys. Thanks for writing in. Uh, we're gonna break off here for a minute, and we're gonna come back with Bond. So I had a chance to go see Skyfall yesterday, despite the fact that I have a kid, and the kid needs to be changed and nursed and. Every every two hours or so is pretty much his clock. You know, every two hours. James James Bond cares not for these things. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. And so I had to ask my wife, like, please, 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 can you take care of the kid for the? Oh my god, the movie's more than an hour, two hours long. Uh, three hours. I'll be back in three hours. And so I rushed over to the mall, caught a matinee of Skyfall, came back. It was no big deal. But man, I'm glad I was able to do that because that was a fucking fantastic movie. And yeah, I feel like it pretty much like let me just put it in the form of a question. Does that pretty much deliver like sort of on the promise of like Casino Royale of the kind of movie they could do with Craig? Absolutely. And the the, the way I'll touch on that in a second. The, the way I'd review the movie is this. I thought about this as the movie was ending. I, I was thinking this is the best movie involving James Bond, but it's still not the best Bond movie to me. Yeah. The- Bond movie is going to be like the Connery. He really exudes Bond. He's on the screen. He's everything that Bond is and should be. Craig's, it's more like, this is actually a legitimately fantastic movie. This this movie, like, I've heard people describe it like it could win an Oscar. Absolutely. It's, it's a, it's a, it's an, you know, Bond aside, it's a movie first, and then the Bond stuff kind of fits into the pieces, you know, and makes it makes. And they it very nicely fit it in too. Yeah, there's so many, so many callbacks. They, this is like a fucking tour de force. They really pulled out all the stops. And what I really admire about this movie is they've done with what Bond movies they they did with this Bond movie what I've always wanted them to do, which is basically just pull out all the stops, pull out all the tropes with how far a Bond movie generally goes in developing a character, and then keep in going beyond that. You know, what's here's where yeah. most movies. Up and they went way beyond that, you know. And I've always wondered, like, it seems arbitrary why they don't develop Bond as a character, why they don't de- go into his past at all, why they don't yeah. deepen the relationship between him and Bond. They always stop at a certain point, almost as if it would be wrong if they made us care about the character. You know, that's what it always seemed like. And here they said, let's just do it. Let's just go for it, you know? Or, yeah, or if it was just a thing like, like you know, this isn't really our aim, you know? We don't want to go there because that's not where, you know, we're trying to go to, like, the the explosion at the end of the movie or something, not to, you know, a, an emotional or, you know, a character sort of arc climax. Yeah. I had this, um, I had this skepticism 
I was totally irrational. This is as soon as the movie started, I was like, you know, right as the credits were beginning, I had no, I had no precedent for the movie. I was like, man, I hope this movie can capture my attention because I'm, I've, I've been through a, a couple, you know, misses this year recently between like Prometheus, let's say, and I, yeah. I really captivated me, and it, and it held me the entire time. Uh, it was a fantastic ride. Um, don't print that. That's the worst box quote you can print. Fantastic. <laughs> Um, it's I will a thrill ride. Yes, yeah, thrill ride of 2012. So, one hilariously obnoxious thing that happened to me in this movie, and it, it it's a testament to this movie's quality that this didn't bother me, is that for anybody that's seen the trailer, this is not a spoiler yet. Bond gets shot within the first, I'd say, seven minutes, maybe. You know, it's no, yeah. it's revealed in the trailer that he gets shot. So when that happens, they're uh, over at MI6. Is that right? Yeah, uh, whatever it is, his agency. They're monitoring his health. And whenever he gets shot, you hear this like kind of like a you know a like his his uh, heart rate you know as if he's dead. And uh, at the time, I was like, oh wow, okay. And then it, and then it, it, it kept making that sound, and I was like, oh, this must be kind of some kind of a stylistic choice because there were more scenes that were happening that were going cutting to London, going with M story, and then back to Bond. And I was like, I guess they're gonna stop that beeping sound when he's like, you know, I'm back in action as Bond. They're going to slowly mute that out. That's kind of a weird choice, but okay. Yeah, that that beeping sound never went away the entire movie. <laughs> what was that? It was just like fucking something was wrong with the speakers, but it, it, I didn't oh notice. Oh, my God. Because, you know, you know, the opening sequence is like fast-paced and loud. It must yeah. have been there until he gets shot and everything's silent for a bit, and that's when I first time I could hear it. So I associated it with his death or his being shot. You probably like you probably you wouldn't like the movie if you saw it without that. <laughs> it was like you made it some deeper art picture experience. Till like a solid like five or six minutes, I was like, man, they're still keeping with his beeping, huh? That's that's a weird choice. Yeah. Mendez, uh, okay, sure. And then I, at one point, I was like, this is this is this is just fucked. But anyway, that was just a yeah. random thing that happened. Um, the villain in this movie was really rooting for him the whole time because he they did what I've always wanted them to do with the Bond villain. As his, he was a former agent. And, of course, they did that with 006 and Goldeneye. But not this was, the, uh, this was better. The extent that I've always wanted them to be. You know, it was a real personal thing with him, the betrayal that he felt. And then he was actually yeah. really capable. It was, it was someone you could relate to him like you could – you know, Bond could relate to him. You know, they were where they were going through similar things where, you know, you could see him potentially being that guy or feeling that way. And also he brought to the table a lot of things that he was he was a capable villain or a capable agent in and of himself. He led Bond on a chase. He he masterminded all this big plan. It wasn't just like he had it wasn't like he was a Bond villain while only one trick up his sleeve, you know, throughout the whole movie. Yeah. You know, things happening. So. I thought that was great, and I've always, always wanted to see that happen on screen, which was, you know, we know the kind of character Bond is and, and all his uh, inner workings. What if that was like there was a darker half to that, you know? I've always wanted that to happen. So uh, the other thing about this movie is it's a decent film because it has all these themes that interlock throughout the whole time, and you don't expect that from a Bond movie. You don't expect them to even bother with, like, themes like uh, – what's the what's the word I'm looking for – obsolescence you know bond himself is getting older there's that, yeah. that painting of the old ship being dragged away QB. yeah that was uh that was very cool yeah they, they, they touch on that throughout the whole thing and of, and of course you know the whole the the conflict in the film is that 
the the villain himself uh, was was an older agent, so he was an you know predecessor of Bond essentially. Yeah, uh, so, I mean it, it all ties together and, and thematically, of course. And then you also have the whole they're in an older house uh, in the end, uh, Bond's childhood house, uh, dealing with uh, the, the 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 older guy that helps him Kincaid. All these things all, all interlock, and I uh, thought so that was really really totally not needed for a Bond movie, but I'm glad they went there. Yeah, me too. And I also going back to that scene with the uh, Q. Yeah. I also just appreciate how he, he makes that comment, which of course is directly, you know, the themes to the film and what's been, you know, explicitly said to Bond, you know, you know, by you know others. And I like his response, which is also, you know, representative of sort of how he deals with it in the movie, where you know he just says, "I just see a big ship," you know, <laughs> like, you know, he's like, he's gonna, he's gonna, he's by choice, he's sort of numb to it, right. Yeah, I wish I'd written more notes because I, I had so many things to say as soon as I walked out of the theater. But um, fantastic. Well, I was just sort of – I don't know. This is a window dressing, but how about that uh, – the opening sequence with the theme song, especially the beginning of it? You know, the one thing I remember uh, about it was that I was surprised that it, they actually tied in the on-screen action to the uh, the sequence. You know, him falling in the water and then him being sucked into this thing and uh, it was a pretty good sequence. I, I felt it, it told a little too much of the story, though, uh, and, and the images that were there. What, what, what were you going to say about it? Well, I was just going to say, I especially I appreciated the, especially the first part, the part that tied the action into where it became really surreal. Actually, yeah, that's the first thing I noted as well. Was yeah, you know, it's a cut. I mean, here's an extreme example: Doctor No's intro sequence with just fucking three blind mice is the theme. You know. <laughs> Ten is what it seems like, and then it just cuts to three old men, you know, whatever. Yeah, and uh, I also appreciated, like, uh, also, I immediately when I saw, like, the, the female arm reach up and grab his arm, right. it, may, it makes you think of Casino Royale mm. and him getting, you know, sort of pulled. That, that's, like, that was the first thought that came to my mind when I saw that. And then the, and but then it sort of got more general when you just see, like, the, the giant hand pulling his, you know, by the foot. And it, it just became clearly surreal as he goes down to that sinkhole. With his My, arms up, and I, I thought it was a really great choice for, you know, the title where they put the title. Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. My my irrational first thought upon seeing the uh, disembodied hand plucking Bond up was the Lady in the Lake from you know Arthurian legend or something like that because it's British, but I think yeah. that's a little field. No, yeah, I can... was just thinking of Vesper, you know, sort of him still being like pulled down into that because I, I didn't I actually hadn't seen quantum of solace before i saw that i saw that one after this one well that's fine you didn't miss much i i sure didn't <laughs> but uh yeah this is actually a better continuation of that really yeah. so uh yeah that's what it brought to mind for me though and i just i thought from the like i was riveted from like that point on I and mean, even you know the opening sequence was great Mm-hmm. and interesting but that was where i really sort of like at that point during that sequence like wow the potential you know sort of the, you could see like the ambition of right. the movie through that uh title sequence and yeah it, it didn't like give too much away for me because i obviously didn't know what was uh what was coming well to me it was so, like certain imagery and then uh, my my mind can't help but compare as i'm going through the movie like oh we still haven't seen that deer head imagery yet i wonder when that's gonna yeah come. yeah the, true so um there's, there's one action sequence that really impressed me as well. One particular one was the the sniper sequence. Visually, with the silhouette, that was fucking amazing. 
And I, I have to imagine they spent a lot of time on making that the choreograph of that work just in silhouette form. Because you can't actually see the action. All you see is two guys blacked out. You know, yeah. Lights, which looks fantastic. When you first, the funny thing is, when you first said that, I was thinking of uh, I at first before you said silhouette, I couldn't decide if you were talking about the money penny thing at the start. Well, there's a big spoiler, or uh, or yeah, that action sequence in uh, where, where does it take place? Is it Shanghai or is it uh, trying to remember what city? I guess it doesn't really matter. Oh yeah, that was a yeah, that was a fantastic uh, like visually, yeah, the movie visually is just beautiful looking like you know if you just looked at it as you know if you were just looking for good cinematography like i think unlike most other bond movies this movie would you know deliver in that regard as well i had a thought as they as he went to that um i don't want to call it the casino slash sex slave place i guess it was a very busy operation (laughs) as he went there you know they have all those uh floating lanterns on the on the water I was thinking, like, you know, when he, when I saw Quantum of Solace, I felt like I was doing the Bond franchise a favor. Even buying a ticket to it after reading the reviews, I was like, I'll see it because I'm a Bond fan. But I can probably take or miss this experience. A- after watching to that point in the movie, I'm like, anybody that's an action fan would be missing out if they skip this movie because it's a Bond movie. You know, they, they, anybody should go out and check this movie out, I think. Yeah. Visually, everything, it, it was just amazing. <clears throat> it also just brings to mind, like like you said, Al, the way – it's interesting because, like, obviously, Die Another Day was the 40th anniversary, and they were trying to, you know, they show, they shoehorned in a million corny references, but in the worst way possible. Like, it was like a parody movie. I mean, it was basically like Austin Powers, the way they would shove things in there to yeah. reference earlier Bond films. Whereas this one, it brings things to, it brought a lot of things to mind, but a lot more subtly. Just like when you see him, you know, in certain, <laughs> you know, locales and everything, it brings to mind, you know, live and let, uh, you only live twice. Right. And things like that, you know, where it's like it's interesting to see Bond back in these locations. And for, you know, sensible reasons, you know, they don't it, they don't go in too deep and they move on to the next thing. It was also interesting how much of it took place in uh, in England and Britain. Yeah. Because usually he's always globetrotting. Yep. Yep. This, was one it, was, this one felt the most personal. The only little like, quick aside or, or jab at the older series they had that really bothered me was it was when he was driving the Aston Martin. <laughs> he, yeah, the, uh, the GB5. The GB5, excuse me. He hits the... I, the, the, that, I, I laughed because it was a funny circumstance, and M's reaction to his joke was, was funny, but it was the most obvious, like, ham-fisted callback, you know, to the earlier movies. It wasn't you very... Know what I, you know what I like about that, though, actually? And I actually, I didn't mind that. Like, and I also, I actually, I mean, it's funny to call it subtle, but just the fact that, you know, if you didn't understand... Like that reference, you just didn't get the joke. Yeah, it was just the way he, you know he flips up the top. He's like, "You're gonna, you know, complain the whole way." And you know, she, she, you know, she kind of explains it with the, you know, "Go ahead, eject me," you know, thing. But still, like, it wouldn't be that funny if you didn't, if you weren't already a Bond fan there. But I, I appreciated that. And the other thing I liked about bringing that back is it sort of tied Craig in with a, you know, the earlier movies and that continuity of like the different Bonds. Whereas like Casino Royale. In Quantum of Solace, because it's a direct sequel, it is like it's that reboot. Whereas this one could just be another Bond movie in a lot of ways. Yeah, but a great one. Like you could, but you could throw it anywhere in the con. You know, in the continuity of Bond. Right. That, you bring up a good point. Actually, I was going to say when I started talking about this movie, I was saying it does things I always wished Bond movies would do, 
and I was wondering why they might not do that. How do you how do you capitalize on this? Where do you go from here if you've already hit all these notes, you know, all these personal touches to Bond? How do yeah, you, that is how do you follow this up? That's the question. It's like people, I mean, it's already, you know, it's if it's not considered the best Bond movie, a lot of people are saying it's the best one ever. You know, I think at worst people are putting it in like the top five. That's like the lowest it's being rated. And that I think a lot of that is like nostalgia. You know, any, anyone be- who has like the spy who loved me <laughs> ahead of uh, anyone who has the spy who loved me ahead of the spy who shagged me is probably wrong. But uh, <laughs> yeah, this one is is probably the most legit like film of any of them and you know going back to probably like from Russia with love things like that where you could say like this just holds up as like a real you know movie not just an action movie or in the bond movie tradition so i don't know where they go from here because it's hard to say how you top it there you know i know that uh craig has signed on for two more and now he's you know he's got a his batting average is good he's got two of the best bonds you know, and people are firmly have him behind Sean Connery. I heard Roger Moore say that he puts him ahead of Sean Connery now. He says he's the best Bond, you know, ever. Where, where and, does Roger, uh, <laughs> Roger Moore place himself? <laughs> Roger Moore does not. Uh, I, I haven't heard him say that. He's just jokingly said that, uh, you know, he appreciates anyone that makes him number one. You know, he'll listen to those people, <laughs> you know. But uh, he said, you know, his personal take is he always had Connery as number one. And he just released a book, actually. Where he mm. just talks about his experiences, Bond, and talks about the other Bonds, mm. and you know he said Connery was one, and he's reconsidered after Skyfall, which he says he, he thinks it's the pinnacle of the series, which is interesting after 23 movies, yeah. and so they're trying to get Sam Mendes back, and it's like would they would they follow up with this another original story? Another idea is to bring in Spectre and Blofeld, or you know even you know Smirsh, the original book name for <laughs> that. Speaking of Blofeld, the outfit that uh, can't remember the, what's what's the villain's name. Um, I can't remember. They always, Silva. They said, hmm. Silva. Silva. Right. The outfit Silva wears as he escapes reminded me of Blofeld. The little zip zip uh, single suit zip up khaki colored thing. I went <laughs> back as well, or if it was just me thinking that too hard, thinking about it too hard. But, I I didn't I actually didn't like his cage just because it was too much the I don't know if you saw my uh, my writings on it in the thread but just it was too much the Hannibal Lecter I, you know I'm tired of that motif. Sure, actually, my first thought was like Magneto from like X Men. Yeah, I I did like uh, the whole I I thought that was a great moment for him just because of that reveal of sort of how damaged he really is. Absolutely, yeah, because he already told yeah, us in literally physically and mentally. Absolutely, because it, it it punctuates the whole conflict he has because he'd already revealed his backstory at that point you think that's it and then he does that and then you realize truly how you know mangled he has become as a result of this um yeah you know it makes you sympathize with him and understand you know what you know where he's coming from although my 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 big flaw with the movie and this is just a technical you know this is just being a twerk but if he really wanted to, and you know, you can even rationalize it, and I'll do that after. Like, why didn't he just sneak into M's apartment like Bond did at the beginning and kill her? Then you know, since he's as good an agent, well, you know, he didn't. He didn't need the years and years of planning. And I mean, I know he, it's I, it's for the point of I guess being grandiose, and because he didn't want to do it anyway. I mean, he could have killed her at the end too, and yet he didn't bring himself to do it. He he basically was there stalling mm-hmm. until Bond could come and you know stab him in the back. So. I I mean, he, there's... he chose that particular venue to try to assassinate her 
because she was on trial, basically. You know, her whole career. Yeah, and he, and he put her on trial. Right, exactly. That's that's why I thought he did, he did that elaborate, you know, ruse to make that happen. The, the biggest problem I had with the movie, it was just, it's a laughable moment. So he plans this for several years in advance. Did he plan that Bond would pin him down at a point where he could so have you, a... Are you talking about the train? So did he know exactly where that train would be at that exact moment? He also he, knew Bond's, like... Is he wouldn't have had his marksman skill back, so he only hits the ladder somehow instead of him. <laughs> like, that being said, cool, cool moment. Other than that, other than thinking about it, cool moment. <laughs> yeah, I rationally. Did you were you able to read the the? It's I think it got lost a little while back in the recently seen thread. But I actually that was a complaint people brought up, and I rationalized it as he didn't necessarily have that planned to like spring on someone or you know to use against Bond or an agent. But yeah. just that that would be that would make sense as a general escape plan to be to like cut off his escape, sure, you know, so that no one could follow him. And it just so happened that Bond was there at the right time. So it's just a coincidence. It wasn't that it was like I've got you, Bond. Take this, you know. This is what I've got. You know, it's just sort of it, it happened that way. But, but it it makes sense in a general way. Yeah, I, I buy that. That makes sense. Um. So I've already said that to me this is the best movie involving James Bond, but not the best Bond movie. However, it is the best legitimate film involving Home Alone traps. Am I right? Yes. I, I heard uh, that comparison too when people say it. Basically, you know, if you think about it, it basically amounts to like Home Alone. Yeah. The ending. It's like, you know, that does bring it down a notch, but. <laughs> uh, it, you know, I wish it didn't, but it does. I mean, I, I yeah. have. You know, it, it it feels a little embarrassing to me that they went that route. But well, what? you know, he never. I'll I'll give them credit for he never had like the shotgun shells in the floorboards or in the you know the light bulb fixtures yeah. with shrapnel. So that's it, it. Took it to the appropriate adult level. Right. <laughs> it's still James Bond after all. Yeah. What did I'm you think of uh, Bond's final quip on him? About the the last rat standing, I, the quips are important. <laughs> you know, I actually his, his last line to Silva. You mean? Yeah, I did not hear it because of the. I, oh my I, god! I, I missed it. I missed his last line. The last one standing is what he said. He said last rat standing. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got it now. Yeah, I heard. I heard brutal standing. I was like, fuck! What did you just say? Shit! <laughs> you heard. <laughs> <laughs> That's horrible. That would have really pissed me off, but it, I guess, you know. Brown out some of the dialogue, honestly, because basically at that point, all the high parts of dialogue were being cut out, and I was only hearing the mid to low points. It wasn't a huge problem. Well, if you'll see the movie again and just hear a bunch of awful dialogue he did it the first time, you're like, oh, it's really changed my view. There were a couple things, maybe two or three lines of dialogue where I couldn't quite hear, but the rest of it was no problem. It's not a very difficult movie yeah. to follow anyway, so... Yeah, it was it was it had a lot of complex things in it, but it also had like one simple thread running through it yeah. that, you know, kept it grounded. Regarding the rat line, uh that was a really you know, when it, whenever Silva's first introduced, it looks super it looks overly dramatic and I was like this this is a little highfalutin for what it is. The slow yeah. elephant and the slow one take walk towards the camera as he's telling kind of a basically a monologue. I thought that was really compelling and effective though, because he starts telling us like cute heartwarming story about him and his grandmother who had an island and then they had the rat problem and then by the time it gets closer to the camera it's just kind of like oh my god dude yeah and the the fact that it's like it's a great introduction in like this sort of chilling and morbid story 
Yeah. And it also the fact that it also applies to them and that it t- applies to the theme. I mean, it really goes to how well crafted this movie was. And it and it, it says something that I was recoiling at first that they were actually trying to have kind of a cool moment because I wouldn't expect that from a Bond movie. I don't want them to try to shoot so far they're going to embarrass themselves and fall on their face, but this movie pulls it off. So that's why yeah. I was embarrassed at first. And also, I guess, uh, let's see, well, first, uh, that that segues into the homoeroticism yeah. <laughs> of that scene. It was random. <laughs> Funny. Yeah. That- yeah, and I appreciated Bond's, uh, yeah. you know, the big discussion was, you know, who says it's my first time? Oh! Oh, is Bond bisexual? You know, it starts the. I heard one of the scriptwriters say the whole point of that was just, you know, that Silva was basically testing him on every, you know, yeah. basically being aggressively sexual with him, you know, as part of, like he'd be aggressive with a gun, you know, pretty much just to sort of test him and threaten him on every front. I, I, and, didn't, uh, I didn't consider the line much. I thought it was just a funny line from Bond. I don't. Yeah. Think, but my, I thought it was interesting. My, it is all. My audience really loved that line, though. They really thought that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> Big laugh track <laughs> going. But uh, I want to talk about Craig for a second because I feel like this is like – I feel like he's become Bond at this point. He was really comfortable in the part there. He Absolutely. wasn't playing – yeah, he wasn't – this was his best portrayal. He really embodied it. He even, you know, had some of the – a little bit more of the charm and the wit going for him in this one he really felt like you know like wow this you know he's you know like connery did before you know yeah. he felt like he really is embodying bond mm-hmm. i and, um what you know what, what initially endeared me to uh, craig's bond was in casino royale where he's a little rough around the edges and he has that uh in this movie as well you know trying to get back into physical shape i think that makes those scenes so much more compelling to watch because yeah, and maybe he will fall off that elevator, you know? It's not yeah. it's not a perfect assassin. It's not a perfect spy, and that's what makes him interesting, you know? Oh, yeah, I mean, he assassinated the guy, you know, not purposefully. You know, he literally couldn't hold the guy up, which yeah. was you know, a funny moment. He's just like, you know, and it was funny because it's like he killed someone that he didn't mean to, and his reaction is like, you know, literally when you drop the ball, it's like, God damn it, you know? <laughs> that sucks. <laughs> shit. <laughs> yeah, um... The way the way I see Craig fitting into the Bond spectrum, I see him as a. I mean, I put him in a totally different league, and I don't mean that he's better than the rest. I just see that he the the, the character that he's portraying is so much more multifaceted than the Bonds that have came before him, where the ones before were kind of like uh, a rough outline or almost a caricature of the real thing. You know, they weren't they weren't really trying to have a fully developed character. Where Craig's trying for something quite a bit more than that. So, I, I mean. Yeah. I, I, Connery, as I've said before, Connery's my favorite Bond because he just bleeds Bond. He, he, you see him on the screen, and he has that suave demeanor that nobody can replicate, and no one yeah. ever. And you know, the thing <laughs> is, he didn't. It was like he didn't even have to try. It's yeah. like he wasn't playing James Bond. He was just being Sean Connery, and we know Sean Connery is Bond at this point. You know, this whatever, what he, everything he did worked. Right. And you just go back and watch those movies, and it's so amazing to me, like how you know. He just—he's so comfortable. Yeah, he melts. It, but at the, it's crazy. Comfortable, but also you believably. I mean, he has it all. Where he's charming, he's funny, he's comfortable, he's casual, and he's also—he's—you know—he's—he's he's a big guy. Dangerous. And he's dangerous, and you, and you believe that you know he's dangerous, and that when you know shit hits the fan, he's no nonsense. You know, he'll slap the woman around, he'll kill whoever he has to kill. 
And, you know, he'll also, you know, sleep with, you know, the woman. He's he's also a womanizer, but without being like, you know, he's not like the Roger Moore, like, where it's like bordering on Austin Powers, <laughs> like, uh, levels. You know, where he's like, it, there's there's even something sort of sinister in his womanizing. Absolutely. Like, you know, I, I, you know, I didn't grow up on Bond movies. I, I went back and watched them retroactively. I think I saw Goldfinger maybe 10 years ago or so, maybe eight years ago. And um, I remember there's, a, there's a, a scene in the haystack where he basically throws a woman in the haystack and starts – he, he forces him to – I watched that with uh, Tina last night and he, she, her reaction, she'd never seen it. Like, isn't that rape? That's it's basically like, rape. I mean, the, yeah, sure, the camera cuts away to, I guess, before she willingly embraces him. But it sure seems well, like she, – she eventually does. That's the, that's, the, that's the nice message of the scene, I guess. I guess it was just a different time, you know? <laughs> Yeah, Just and in from Russia with Love, he actually, I believe, he slaps. Uh, sure, sure. Yeah, the girl I forget her name. The opening sequence of Doctor No, doesn't he slap a woman like hardcore across the face? I don't remember. Oh yeah, and also that's that has some of his most like cold kill too. I think I forget he like he looks like what actually happened here, but some woman he sleeps with tries to kill him, and he ends up killing her instead, or he like drugs her and knocks her out and leaves her as like a prop for himself in the bed and then this other guy comes in and you know fills basically you know fills her with bullets yeah and then connery you know interrogates him and when the guy tries to pull his gun on him he just coldly tells him like you know how many bullets he had in the gun and you're out and then he just blows him away and then shoots him while he's on the ground for good measure while he's smoking a cigarette <laughs> this and is it's like this is why i like connery's bond because he can pull that off nobody else could pull that shit off yeah even would, even craig would, isn't that isn't that isn't that cold and that cool at the same time? You know, <laughs> to get my uh, to mix my uh, temperature references there. In and Connor, Connor will do all that with a smile on his face, basically a little smug yeah. ass grin. You know, he has a smile and he's smug. And he, but you could tell he was he was pissed off too that the guy tried to kill him. And it was like all these emotions in one. I was just like, that's really a, it's kind of brilliant. So, so again, again, I don't think I don't think Craig can touch that that aspect of Bond, but again, I, I've always thought what Craig's trying to do with the character is far more interesting to watch on screen for a whole movie versus a couple key scenes, you know? Yeah, I really hope that if if not Craig, that the film gets nominated for some awards, you know, with the, the 20 Best Picture nominations at the Academy Awards now that we're supposedly for the purposes of nominating more mainstream films. Don't worry, Zero Dark Thirty will win anyway. As best <laughs> So, Is it going to be Silver Linings playbook, or you know? Yeah, um, I, I think as far as it getting nominated, I don't, I don't think it's possible because I think I think it's got such a stigma attached to it as a franchise. The stobs in Hollywood, the ones that actually nominate these things, aren't going to give it any serious attention. You know, if, if it was about some, if it was just called, you know, I don't know, if it wasn't James Bond. She was just Skyfall, and his name was something else, and it's about an agent. People would, you know, say this is what a James Bond movie should be, and then it could be yeah. nominated. Absolutely, it's already got Ralph Fiennes in it, right? It's already like almost like Oscar material, isn't that he? Uh, Mallory in it? Yeah, yeah. What'd you think of him? I honestly, when they, they first introduced him, I thought he was going to be like the uh... yeah, like a bad guy. Yeah, yeah, because it seems like you know M was pulled to him to do a, a, an interview. While you know her building exploded, that was like the first tip to me, and the fact that he, you know he kept being set up to be a bad guy, and, and then he was, you know he's being a dick to Bond, but you you find out you know 
well, he was. It was like it was he was being genuine. You know, it was he was doing it because it was actually right. Right. As you find out that you know he he wasn't ready, and it's sort of that nicely uh, sort of set up his uh, role in the end. Yeah, and actually, it of course, makes it make sense. One other thing about Mallory, I wanted to say was, um, tell me if tell me if you think I'm overstepping here, but the way he his character was described was he was an agent, and that he was captured by um, the IRA and tortured, and then. Ultimately, he came back and, and continued on as an agent, eventually getting a desk job. That's his basic character history, right? And I don't know. I don't know that he was actually an agent, like like in the same way Bond and Silvermore, or if he was just he just was in the field that time and ended up getting captured. Right. I, that's all I. But meant. he was still in like maybe a leadership role, but he ended up getting captured, and he you know and he performed admirably. Exactly. It kind of performs a contrast for Silva, who was also in the field and captured, and ultimately just broke basically. Yeah, well, um, I don't. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that. Uh, oh, never mind. That's fine. <laughs> it's gonna like split hairs. No, no. I mean, that's fine. That, that's why I was I was bringing it up. Is do you think that's an accurate parallel, or do you think that parallel wasn't intended to be made? No, I think that I think that is a good and accurate parallel. I was just gonna say I was I was like I'm sympathizing with the devil and whatever. Well, Silva didn't like. I mean, he didn't give away any. It was M that sold him out. You know, like rather than him giving up information. I don't it was know that he. Loaded. It was a more loaded. Yeah, he tried to he tried to kill you know he tried to do the right thing and kill himself, but then he didn't die. Uh, so, which was an interesting, uh, I thought, wrinkle to his character and yeah. sort of how he how he uh, sort of mythologized that you know with his relationship with them. Right, and also, I mean, Bond dies in the opening sequence, or at least sort of die. You know, has a chance to die, and he, he yeah. his thing was a resurrection. It's also, yeah, and they and they uh, and you know and yeah, Mallory asks him, you know, why why did it, you know, and he and he says it like it's like accusing, but it's also he wants to know, you know, the rationale and you know what's, you know, he wants to know what Bond's made of, right? And it's you know it's sort of interesting that uh, you know that he's already playing the part that uh, he eventually uh, gets at the end, and that it makes sense, so it's not arbitrary at the end. And I really liked it, and he really sort of fit that old school uh, role. Yeah. I'm choosing my words carefully so as not to spoiler people actually in my apartment <laughs> who haven't seen it. Um, so the last scene in the movie, the office they used, pretty much the same office as early Bond movies. Like Doctor No is is briefing is briefing and spy. Uh, was it from Russia with Love? It's the same basic setup. That's it's that's the callback, right? That's intentional. You think? Oh the yeah. Way, the way Money Penny's situated. He puts the office, uh, you know, his, his coat on the little hanger there. That's all. I was, I'm wondering if I was reading too much into that or not. But no, 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 no. I don't think you were at all. I think that, if anything, they were overplaying like their hand, right there. <laughs> and then, well, yeah, I was just like, this is a little blatant, but I, I get it, guys. You know, the oak wood yeah. ground. You know, <laughs> I actually, I really appreciated that, and I, I wasn't so much thrilled with the. Uh, the gun barrel sequence, I thought it looked a little cheesy, but it might have just been in that moment because I, I looked it up online later and it looked okay. You mean like the Bond will be back, the very end thing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that part. Well, just the gun barrel sequence where he, you know, he does the traditional walk and then shoots and the blood comes down. Do you mean the end or the beginning? At the, well, it was at the end in this movie. It's at the beginning of all the others. Well, he does a sort of, no, he doesn't. He does that in Casino Royale. He does, I actually really like the way they did it there. Yeah, but I'm talking about at the end of this one, they had the gun barrel walk at the end. I think they did that at the end of Quantum of Solace too. Except I didn't give a shit at that point. Whereas in this movie, it was, 
It was such a good movie. I was invested in the quality yeah. of it. I was just getting your take. Did you think that looked good? Uh, it looked fine. To me. I was still processing the whole movie at that point. I had already kind of disengaged by the time yeah, that... You were, you were analyzing the gun barrel. No, I was not looking at the gun barrel. Yeah, okay. Uh, I, was sort of, I was sort of like seeing if I had enough you know, drink to justify throwing it away or not. I'm pretty sure it was what my attention was at that point. I'm not the best Bond aficionado. Actually, I've not seen all of them. I, I skipped most Roger well, neither Moore. Neither have I. There's, Dalton. there's ones that just look like they're not worthwhile. Yeah. Uh, Did you see the Dalton ones? I saw I saw the one where he goes to uh, New Orleans. Is that right? And the one where he's... Was Christopher Walken? Are those the same ones? Oh, that's a, that's a Roger Moore. Yeah. Uh, let's see. The, yeah, so you've seen Live and Let Die and The Man with the Golden Gun. Oh, those are... I'm not a Live and Let Die was weird because it's like a black exploitation movie. Yeah, James Bond in it, and it, I thought it was a real weird choice for his first like portrayal. You think they'd go with something more traditional? Oh wait, I know what I wanted to talk about actually with uh, okay. with Craig. Okay, and like sort of where they would go next from here. Okay, now that they've sort of established M and Money Penny, and they've done this sort of you know set it up for like that old. You you mentioned Doctor No in the old movies. Now they set it up perfectly like those in an homage, mm-hmm. and you know bringing back Blofeld. Do you think they would go back and actually do some of the, you know, like consider a remake? I was excited at Casino Royale implying a Spectre again. I was excited at that prospect. And they sort of do that in Quantum of Solace, but not to the extent that I'd wanted them to. You know, yeah. and that criminal organization worldwide. I mean, that was the that was the implication with a villain in Casino Royale, wasn't it? That there was a larger organization behind Yeah, they basically implied Spectre. Right, yeah. That was and, what was uh, cool the ending of that movie and they didn't really go they never, and they never paid it off like and I actually heard Quantum of Solace Craig said about it that like that was during the writer's strike mm. and that they pretty much didn't have like a real done script when they were doing that he said that even he was making like suggestions and he is not a writer and that's yeah. why that movie is sort of you know the way it is and yeah. I yeah it sort of squandered that opportunity but uh, it would be nice if like I don't know it would be interesting I, I have mixed feelings on it. It would be kind of neat to see Craig. I know his favorite and Connery's favorite was from Russia with Love. Mm-hmm. To see them do an adaptation of that. But it, at the same, you know, it would be so different from the way they did it before that it would be like a new movie. Mm. And if they, uh, probably something more plausible where it wouldn't be where they were remaking old ones. Because it would be strange in the continuity they've done, even though this is a supposed, you know, reboot with Casino Royale. Yeah. Is... It would be weird to have, you know, from Russia with Love 1960, you know, 3, and from Russia with Love, you know, 2014. That would be very disorienting, I think, <laughs> I, for the I, entire... I, I really don't think they're going to go that direct, you know? I, but what I, they... Yeah, I, I'm, I agree with you. But what I think they could do is they could go back to the... Because a lot of those movies, especially the ones with Roger Moore and uh, even some of the later Connor ones, you know, they were adaptations in name only. They mm-hmm. take the title and then it would be a completely different story. Sure. What they could do, I feel like, is go back and you know take the material that they sort of didn't use and you know come up with a new name and then just do those stories, which they did a lot of that already with some of these. But I mean, like you know, do a faithful version of Moonraker or something. Yeah, I mean, that's that's true. I, I think I remember reading that um, with Quantum of Solace, they were pretty much exhausting. The amount of original titles or original works that the uh, yeah. the author had done, so they're pretty much done as far as original titles are concerned. Or, or so they got to start like, either 
returning to the well with existing titles or making up new titles. Yeah, and well, they've they did that for all of uh, Pierce Brosnan's movies. It was all original titles. Oh, okay. And uh, and stories. It's a Golden Eye had a few things based in uh, mm. original material, and License to Kill I think was the first one that wasn't named after a Bond story. I actually like Dalton in uh, The Living Daylights. I didn't like License to Kill though. I can't inter- I can't separate the two. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. <laughs> the same no, movie. Uh, I, I watched them like again over the Thanksgiving okay. break, so I'm they're fresh in my mind. Mm. But uh, yeah, so just keeping it on the future. I I don't know where they're gonna go from this. I guess they'll just do. I think the writers they've had for the last well, five movies say that they're done. Do you remember reading anything about what Skyfall was gonna be before they got it back on track? Because you know Skyfall was interesting because there was this long period where they weren't working. Remember? Yeah, because they they started on it, and Sam Mendes, you know, he was attached, and then they like, I guess they didn't have the money. the The company did. They basically put the whole project on hold, and then the whole thing got rewritten because the original idea for Skyfall was they were going to do a Spectre thing, and the head of Spectre was going to be Rachel Weisz, who's the wife of Daniel Craig, uh, not related, but uh, that was the premise of. The original successor to Quantum of Solace, as I, as I remember reading, but then that they sounds have, like a much worse successor. <laughs> I, I agree, but it, it shows their writers' intent to return to the idea of Spectre, and I, and I just wonder if they'll carry that through or if that's just a, you know, hanging branch at this point. Yeah, well, what's interesting is there's also a question of like the who owns the Blofeld character because like oh yeah, if you're at all familiar with yeah the Never Say Never Again movie, the non. The non-canon Bond film, essentially. It's just weird that it exists. You know, I remember, I remember yeah. you were the person to tell me about that, and I was like, "This is not. This is basically alternate reality Bond, essentially." I mean, it's like this does this doesn't happen where a property gets out in the open, like where like you know this isn't like it's not public domain. How is this possible? <laughs> right. And uh, but it's I mean I don't know that they have. Uh, and also, if you've ever seen For Your Eyes Only, they kill Blofeld at the beginning in sort of real embarrassing fashion. Just like <laughs> basically the message is to the guys who own Blofeld. It's like it's basically f you. Like mm. we don't need Blofeld. We don't need you. They they drop him in a smokestack. Wow. <laughs> like what? yeah. And he's literally like, he, this is a line from the movie. He tells Bond before he drops him down a smokestack, like, "I'll buy you a delicatessen in stainless steel." And he says it all desperate. It's like a, it's like at a Warner Brothers. What? It's, a car, it's very I, cartoonish. It doesn't make any sense. This is like what I said uh, in the comments. Was I'm so surprised this franchise has lasted as long as it has, given the number of gaffes that have happened of course of it. You know, the, the number whole of just bad was, movies that they so made. Many- so many shitty movies. I mean, Bond, you know, before Brosnan came out, even when Brosnan was around, Bond was still sort of a joke. Like, you kind of chuckled in the back of your head watching some of the well, sequences. He was credited with, like, restoring it to glory, but his, you know, GoldenEye was a was a good start, and then the next three movies were, you know, it got, yeah, it just kept getting worse. Yeah. I mean, I think the most famous thing from Brosnan is, like, I've heard people criticize GoldenEye the movie because they're like, Okay, how can it be that good when the video game is better? <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, I, I, I loved GoldenEye as a kid. That was my first Bond movie, by the way. Um, yeah, that was the first I, one for me, too, the one I saw in theaters. 
looking back, a lot of it's pretty stupid and ridiculous to me. I I, I don't really have a lot of respect for it anymore as a Bond movie. I, I think it, was- it works like as a good like '90s action movie, and they do it does hint at sort of the humanizing of them that's come now, where like M is it, it has Judy Dench's M for the first time, sure. interestingly sure. enough, where she criticizing him and calls him, you know, an old dinosaur of the Soviet age, and he just sort of has to take it. It was the first time they got sort of introspective in that way. Uh, Brosnan's a little too wholesome for me, though. I, yeah. I, I, I like the rough edge that Craig brings, and I, of course I also like the uh, kind of the bully thing that Connery brings, but Brosnan yeah. is too much of a good guy, you know, way too much of a... Boy uh, Scout. Yeah, but I've I've always as a kid I liked him because he was my first Bond. You know, he broke me in, so to speak. But uh, yeah, I don't like him much anymore because of that aspect. Yeah, Yeah, I've not even seen all of the Brosnan movies. I've seen the first two and the last one. And the last one I watched drunk with my wife at the time, fiance, because we were just wanted to have something on in the background. I remember him. Uh, it was a car chase scene over ice at an ice hotel, and that was. Did it have like a? It was like an ice palace, and there's the invisible car. And... Yep, that's the shitty one. Did you ever see the Spy Who Loved Me? No. I okay, because that is by reputation, it's like the best of the Roger Moore Bonds. You know, it's supposed to be you know his his Goldfinger. You know, it's like the the magnum opus. And if you watch it, it's like. It's a joke, like, right from the beginning, like, you know, he, this girl says, James, I need you, and he, like, leaves, and he's like, so does England, you know, and, like, he goes out on skis, and there's, like, disco music, and he, and he, like, does this jump where he, uh, he opens his parachute, and it's, like, the British flag, Mm. and it's just, like, wow, this is, like, this is, like, Austin Powers, and this is what Austin Powers is based on. It's entertaining, though, but it's still, like, uh... (laughs) I don't know. It's just it's weird to think that's the best of Roger Moore. Yeah. Like, I like to think that the Bond movies kind of kind of mirror what people wanted out of movies at the time. You know, the Bond movies in the seventies and the eighties they weren't so seventies uh, weren't really serious affairs. They were just something to go see on the weekends. But now people crave deeper movies, characters that actually have you know development and meaning. I, I, I like to think I think it mirrors that because you know what it. People, People it's probably, interesting that you say. Oh, go ahead. People probably liked the more movies at the time, right? Those were sort of liked at the time. Otherwise, they wouldn't have kept making them. But looking back, they're just embarrassing because they're a sign. Oh no, yeah, that's that's the thing that's interesting about these Bond movies being made essentially by the same production company all these years is just it's a it's a like crash course in film history. You can see what was popular at the time, like you know the early seventies Bond, you know Live and Let Die. It's it's a black exploitation picture. Yeah. And, you know, Spy Who Loved Me is this – it's supposed to be semi-serious, but by today's standards, it's really campy and really funny. And it's like – I just look at it and I think of like the 60s Batman version of James Bond with Roger Moore. <laughs> and – but it's – and, you know, the 80s ones with Dalton, you know, they sort of – they make sense for the 80s. And the Brosnan ones in the 90s and the early, you know, aughts make sense for, for that era. And it's interesting where it's sort of uh, – where filmmaking has come and, you know – I don't know what the commentary is with Skyfall if we're just into, like, really self-serious, you know, like, kind of films. You know, brooding, you know, like, the Dark Knight movies and things like that compared to, like, Batman of the 80s and the 60s. I think, um, 
obviously we're too close to tell how it'll fall into history, but I like to think that Skyfall kind of rose above the the tropes of all the other Bond movies, where it, it is trying yeah. to thing better than his predecessors because it's doing more with the character and the and the the mythology than any movie has done before so the, the other thing it just tells me is like sort of because you look at those earlier bond movies and it's like it's the same production team and it's like there were great films being made and those mm. films weren't great for the most part they were you know they weren't even good going by you know highfalutin bond. standards yeah it's James Bond but it just also tells you how much better like the craft of filmmaking has come yeah where it's like you know you can look at these movies and it's not just arbitrary like oh yeah they made great movies you know in the 30s and the 60s and they make great movies now and great movies are great movies and bad ones are bad ones but just the craft where it's like movies even bad movies now are so much better like made than movies were and you can see it like in you know and to me skyfall it's like it's the same you know same principles and it's the same production company and even the same family that's in charge of these movies, but you can just see how much better made this movie is where this is like, this could be like an Oscar movie and mm-hmm. they never came close to making movies like that before in this series. Right. Right. So it, it, I don't know. It was just an interesting thing to me to think of it in, you know, on a macro level in relation to all film. Like I've sort of seen the last decade of movies as being sort of this, like, you know, it's bland and there's a lot of like by the numbers, but like those numbers, they've gotten it down to such a science. Mm-hmm. Is you know the other takeaway there? <clears throat> um, I don't think the next movie will be as good because it's not going to be able to hit those same <laughs> notes. No, it's it because it, in you know it's also the thing where it's like as Craig gets older, there maybe like the movie after this one will try to do the you're too old for this Bond again because once you yeah. play that card, I know it, that's like, what I'm saying. you can't you can't do it every time. And if they couldn't do it when Roger Moore was like sixty, then uh, <laughs> and here's the thing though, like that's even if it sucks, that's okay with me. I mean, hey, yeah, one of them's in theaters because I like Casino Royale. I'll see the next one whether it's shitty or not. And I imagine there's millions of other people that are the same way. You know, he's yeah. he's earned the the franchise has earned another look. You know, for everybody at this point, in my opinion. So. I feel like Craig is sort of you know he made his he's made his bones. You know, and you know he owns the role now. He's in Bond history as you know one of the yeah. best. And, you know, they can't, even if he makes, you know, and actually I even like kind of like Quantum where for its purpose, that that's his stinker now. You know, <laughs> he's got his, every Bond has their bad Bond, you know, <laughs> like the one that's and like, oh. As bad as Quantum of Solace is, it's not nearly as bad as some of the Roger Moore movies. Good God. You know, Quantum oh, of Solace yeah. is, is watchable. It's just not compelling, you know. Yeah. It's just sort of, that one is sort of just, yeah, it's sort of just, uh, yeah. I don't know. It's just an action movie. I should probably give it another shot because I saw it in theaters and I never looked back. Um, I kind of wanted to watch it again before this, but obviously I, I was no need to because there's no threads that are connecting really. So I was the, the the my main interest in watching it was seeing them follow up on the threads of Casino Royale, and you know eh, it was kind of painted in the in the in the margins. Mm. You know they they didn't really address it directly. Even his conversation he has with her boyfriend at the end, which is like, ooh, here's the big you know climax. It kind of reminded me of the Born. Uh, what's the second Born movie? Uh, Supremacy Ultimatum. Yeah, yeah it's Supremacy. The okay. Born Supremacy, where he talks to the woman and that was like his her parents was his first kill. Mm. And you know they actually sat down and you know the, some writers had to write what he would say to her and what she would say. They had a conver- You know there was a conversation. 
Mm-hmm. And in this one, like, when they go to talk, it cuts to M outside, and Bond comes out, and they bring him out, you know, in handcuffs. Yeah. Or he sends them in to arrest them, and it's like, really? We're not even going to get the the whole point, ostensibly, of Bond's arc was this conversation, and they don't even show it. Yeah. They didn't know what to do with it, basically, is what it sounds like. They didn't know how to capitalize on that. So. Exactly. They, like, you know, like, they wanted to tantalize it, and then I got more closure from... You know the opening, the credits of this movie yeah. on that. You know, just that it. Oh yeah, that still affects him. Yeah. So um, um, we could probably keep going for hours. Whenever whenever Bond got shot, and he said test this in the lab, and it turned out to be depleted uranium bullets. He got shot by a guy that had like magazine spools on his arm, right? So the guy had, I'm assuming, thousands and thousands of rare bullets that were depleted uranium is that what i'm supposed to take from that uh i'm not sure i don't remember exactly uh i saw well, it a few weeks ago well it, he, he gets shot in the opening sequence when he's operating the crane he's operating that big crane yeah i remember him getting shot and i remember later they reveal like if that had been you know a straight shot you'd be dead you know and everything because of what was in uh the bullets but i'm just not sure what you mean by how much like the guy how much how many bullets he had or Sure, whenever you first see him firing his gun, he has this unique-looking gun. It's a handgun, or it's, it's an automatic, I should say. But going down the bottom of his hand, uh, trailing up his arm, are these two spools of, of bullets. Like, it's, it's basically an extended magazine that has, like, a thousand rounds. It's just this massive, massive clip. Like basically. what you saw Blaine have in Predator, you know, but for a minigun. <laughs> right, right. But it's along his arm. Supply. And it's basically saying this guy can fire as long as he needs, so Bond has to get into cover. So... Uh, Bond gets shot with that and then later tests the bullet and turns out it's like one of these rare, super expensive bullets. And I'm assuming the guy now, must have had... I, I thought he used a handgun, though, when he shot Bond. I thought he had run out of bullets or had to switch weapons at some point. I don't know. It's probably not a point I should focus on. Well, you know much. what? I think they said it was rare that not many people use it. Okay. Not that it was necessarily uh, that it was, you know... Obviously, the guy was probably, you know, well-funded. Yeah. And, I, you know, an expert, I, so... I shouldn't think too much about it. It just bothered me at the time, like, that it was some kind of super bullet, but yet he was firing them like they were candy, you know? But whatever. Yeah. Anyway, that's a lame way to end out this segment, but we have been going for <laughs> a while, so... Everybody that's still sticking around, you've probably already seen Skyfall, but if you haven't, you should definitely go check it out. Whether you're a Bond fan or not, you should give it a, you should give it a chance, so... We will be back in a couple weeks. I guess I never mentioned this before, but there's no big Berserk news to talk about. There is no episode the rest of the year. That's confirmed. Uh, The DVD release of DVD slash Blu-ray release of Movie 1 is now domestic, so go check that out if you haven't, because it's fantastically crappy. (laughs) You remember what I said about movie filmmaking just getting better? I take it it back. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, that's Japan. It's in a vacuum. Um, yeah, not much else going on. Kind of a slow time for us, as usual. Things usually, you know, flow with the episodes, and we're in a lull right now, so. Plus, I think we're all just really busy in our personal lives. I can't speak for, you know, everyone on the forum, but just the three of us. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, mean, I, I don't have nearly as much time to peruse, but there's again, there's not much perusing to be done right now, so no big deal. We'll be back in a couple weeks. Thanks for checking us out again. Later.